Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, I formally announced that I am in fact a completely different person than Eric Helms, and Greg shares some impressive feats of strength. After that, I've got a research review segment about how antioxidants relate to nitric oxide and hypertrophy, and Greg tells us all about his new Stronger by Science article about the concept of effective reps. Finally, we interview Lauren Colenso-Semple, who tells us about her research on muscle fiber types, her recent study on training volume for resistance-trained females, and much more. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by my temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Before we get into the real meat of the episode today, I do want to come clean about something. So there's kind of an ongoing, I don't know how I'd put it. There's, there's, I would call it an assault. I was going to go toward there's some ambiguity out there that I feel like maybe I've been partially contributing to. Well, I mean, just given the utterly depraved nature of the accusation here, I mean, I would call it a, a pretty major assault personally. Let's just let's just get straight to it here. So uh, today we're, we're recording on a Thursday, which means an episode went live this morning. And like two of the first four comments were to congratulate Eric Helms on a job well done. And so I want to clear the air and I want to uh, put the rumor to bed. Eric Trexler, who is I, and Eric Helms, those are two completely separate human beings. So if, if you thought Eric Trexler was a pseudonym or an, like an alter ego that Eric Helms developed, that's not accurate. Uh, Eric Trexler is not some kind of shell corporate entity that Eric Helms created for liability purposes. It, it's not like a Marshall Mathers, Slim Shady type relationship. No, these are, these are two human beings, just normal human beings, more or less, that are separate. So different families, different. Uh, different genes, different heights. Um, we happen to live on separate continents. And so it seems like every episode, there's a, a non-negligible amount of people who think that after about 40 hours worth of podcasting here, they still think Eric Helms is the host of the show. So I've considered a few possibilities. Um, one would be that this is an elaborate troll operation, in which case I lost if you were trolling, and that's the point of this, you win. I have been trolled hard. Um, but I, I, I think this is um, probably a Russia-funded operation yes. in, in connection with Guccifer 2.0. Probably. So it could be a troll operation, in which case it is an extremely dedicated troll operation. Because it's been going on for about 17 weeks. <laughs> which is... <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a hell of a job. It's like, it's like Gamergate all over again. It is. Now, the other option is, well, one of the other possibilities is that this is a conspiracy theory that Eric Trexler and Eric Helms are actually, in fact, the same person. Um, now, there are pictures of both of us in the same room at the same time. And we also did release an episode that was like 90 minutes of the three of us talking and there were definitely three distinct voices. You can run that through some kind of software to identify. There were three separate human voices on that recording. Um, 
But I will say this, most of the pictures of me with Eric Helms did, they were taken in Finland and a lot of people don't believe Finland exists. And one one thing to note, just for the conspiracy theorists out there, um, much like the Beatles conspiracy that Paul McCartney is dead, if you take the intro music to our podcast, press it onto vinyl, which is the only correct way to listen to the podcast on vinyl, of course, um, press it onto vinyl and play it backwards, the intro music does actually say Eric Helms is dead. So, so I, I, that was completely unintentional. Uh, our sound engineer, I think just put that in to play a joke on us, but I can understand if that is where the conspiracy came from. Yeah. So the thing that kills me is we've got like a good 90 minute interview with Helms on our show. I did like a good 90 minutes on their podcast, uh, Helms and I are both listed as reviewers on Mass every month. So it should be pretty clear, like, whether you consume his stuff or my stuff or both of our stuff, that we are, in fact, two separate entities, you would think, right? I would hope so. Okay, now, there is a a third option that this is a deliberate misinformation campaign by Omar and Helms. Again, in conjunction with the Russians. In conjunction with the Russians or the Dutch or both. Um, so maybe they're behind this. I don't know. Then the fourth option is that I'm simply too low key and I need to talk myself up more on the podcast. And it's, I guess probably in the third person. I think that'd be the only way to really get the name recognition across, wouldn't you say? Sure. So that's the only real actionable possibility. When you look at them, the rest are kind of out of our hands. So expect over the next several years, a whole lot more of me talking about me in a very favorable way. Okay, so for today's episode, uh, we got a lot going on. We do have an interview with Lauren Colenzo Semple. And we recorded this interview, I don't know, when did we record that? Two or three months ago. Two or three months ago at minimum. Um, Things have changed a lot in the last few months at Stronger by Science. Um, In the last few months, we've made some big changes to our coaching program, which we don't talk about much on the show. Uh, but the first thing we did a while back was we added Greg Schiltz. And he's our, our registered dietitian on staff. He's also a close personal friend of ours. And just to be clear, me and Greg Schiltz are <laughs> are also two different people. Uh, to, to keep up with this general uh, audio universe, you do need to keep two Eric's separate and two Greg's separate. But, but that should be pretty doable. Yeah, so completely separate Greg Schultz, uh, who is our, our registered dietitian, and we brought him on, and then essentially all of our coaching positions filled up immediately, <laughs> and so like we just completely filled up everyone's rosters, and we figured, uh, okay, it's probably time to grow again, and so in the last few weeks, we added three new coaches, so we added Jason Yuri who is uh, a doctor of physical therapy, which is cool because that's a skill set we did not previously have on the team. We added Dale Keith. He was the lead research assistant in my dissertation research and the lead research assistant in Greg's thesis research. So we we both know him extremely well and have been very much in the trenches with Dale. So he's a very good guy, very good coach. He's been training people for a while. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the reason I bring all this up, our interview today is with the other coach we recently brought on, and that is Lauren Colenzo-Semple. Now, Lauren's uh, 
if you look at like the coaching tree to borrow a metaphor that she comes from the the lineage of people she studied under it's insane so she started out interning and, and kind of volunteering in brad schoenfeld's lab then she did her master's in bill campbell's lab at usf and then uh she went and did an internship with Andy Galpin. And while she was doing that internship with Galpin, she spent a weekend at the Glute Lab over with Brett Contreras to you know, hang out and learn some stuff. Now she's doing her PhD under Stu Phillips. If you were into hypertrophy and sport nutrition, I don't know if you could select a better group of people to, to learn under. Like if you listed like the top eight, there's no way that all five of them don't show up in there. Yeah. So she knows her stuff. Um, just the fact that you would bother to go learn from those people kind of tells you everything you need to know. Like this person at least knows where to get stuff, mm -hmm. knows where to find information. So um, we, we interviewed her long before we ever intended to bring her on as a coach, honestly, because uh, we wanted to hear about her study on training volume in female resistance trained lifters. Um, so if you stay tuned, you're going to hear that interview at the end of the show. But before we get to that, as always, we got to talk about feats of strength. Yes, sir. So, um, uh, boss of bosses six was pretty recent. Um, that's a, I believe it's an invitation only meet where a lot of the best lifters go compete every year. It's, it's basically the world championships for untested lifting. <laughs> I mean, it's the IPL worlds is also pretty big, but I would say boss of bosses, if anything is, is a bigger meet at this point than, than IPL worlds is not, not in terms of like total number of lifters, but in terms of like the number of records that are set. And so there were several absolutely insane performances out of that meet. One thing that is probably worth touching on is there were quite a few complaints about judging at that meet. Um, several squats on video at least looked high. And to this point, I haven't seen any side videos. So I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything as egregious as some of like the circa 2013 multiply world record squats. But there were definitely some that, to my eye, from the front angles that were available, did look highly questionable. Um, but I mean, the judges called him good. I haven't seen a side angle. That's as far as I'm going to go, as far as like that controversy goes. Uh, but th the judging did seem somewhat iffy. But that being said, um, Yuri Belkin, who is the god of the middleweight untested men at this point. Uh, he competed at 220 uh, or in the 100 kilo class. He has done several of his recent meets in the 242 or 110 kilo class. And that's mostly because he does the thing that Russian lifters do where they just don't cut in a very easy amount of weight to cut. So this is something that like Belayev did back in back in the day as well when he was taking 220 records that very easily could have been 198 records. But at his last few meets, like Yuri Belkin's been weighing in anywhere between like 224 and 228, but competing at 242 instead of cutting those like four to eight pounds. But he he did cut to 220 for this meet, uh, squatted 416 kilos, which is 917 pounds, and totaled 1066 kilos, which is 2,350 pounds. 
Um, both of those all-time world records in the class uh, that put him... I can't remember if he was in first place or second place for all-time Wilkes for male lifters. Um, but if he wasn't in first before, he is now. That was a 649 Wilkes, which is just absolutely stupid. Um, that's So he also holds the record at 110 or 242. And the record he just set at 220 is higher than his 242 record, which he just set back in April, which again was set at a body weight of like 228. Um, but he, I mean, he shows no signs of slowing down. He is the god of those weight classes. Uh, the second or the next closest person at 220 is also a very, very good lifter, Tom Martin. Um, but his best total is 1085 or in pounds 2171. So there's like an 180 pound gap between Yuri and the rest of the class at this point. Um, he was one of the ones where the squat was kind of iffy, but whatever, like the lifts counted huge record for him. Uh, also from the meet from that same meet, I'm pretty sure Christy Hawkins uh, now holds all four all time world records in her weight class. Uh, she competes untested in the 75 kilo class or 165 pound class. Uh, in kilo, she went 285, 150, 255 for a total of 690, or in pounds, that's 628, 331, 562 for a 1521 total, which, I mean, regardless of like knee wraps or drug testing or anything else, like those are sick numbers at 165 for anyone. And for a 165 pound female, that's also insane. Very similar to Yuri Belkin, she's miles ahead of anyone in her class right now. That puts her 140 pounds ahead of the number two total in her weight class. And like I said, that's the all-time records for four lifts simultaneously. I don't know. I don't know if anyone has simultaneously held all four records in one weight class since maybe Lamar Gant. Um, I think Ed Cohn may have at 198, but I, I'm not sure. I don't think he ever held the bench record. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a incredibly impressive feat. Um, at the same meet, CC Ingram, who is kind of the, the boss at 181 or the 82 and a half kilo class, uh, for untested woman, she improved her all time world record total, uh, to the surprise of no one because she's a beast. She totaled 737.5 or 1626 uh, at 181, which, again, is crazy. Um, on the tested side of things, uh, Amanda Lawrence recently posted uh, a, a PR deadlift uh, gym lift. So USAPL Nationals are coming up. Amanda Lawrence, I believe, currently has the world record in that weight class, which is the 84 kilo class or 185 pound class. Uh, I believe she currently has the world record at 252 and a half kilos or 557 pounds. Um, so that that gives her a gym lift that's about 20 pounds over her current world record. Looked like she still had some in the tank. And the probably the most important thing is in, in the video she posted... Uh, grip looked very comfortable. She held it for sev for several seconds at lockout. In the past, I believe she has been good for heavier deadlifts, but has pretty consistently had grip issues. So it seems like she's sorted that out and is probably going to improve on her own world record deadlift. And 
The 84 kilo class for the women is going to be a really, really fun class to watch at nationals this year because Amanda Lawrence and Daniela Mello are both in that weight class. They're both young. I think Amanda's 22 and Daniela's like 20. Um, They're still both improving very rapidly and they're currently tied for the world record total in that weight class. And Amanda edges Daniela out slightly because at the meet where they both set the world record, Amanda weighed in slightly lighter. Um, But they're like super, super neck and neck. Uh, Daniela hasn't been posting to Instagram as much recently, but I'm sure she's stronger as well. And uh, that's going to be a dogfight at nationals that I'm very excited to watch. And then um, the final one for the day, actually, no, two more. So new all-time world record in the 67 and a half kilo or 148 pound class uh, for untested men, Mikey Estrella, um, totaled 738 kilos or 1,627 pounds, which at 148, that's that's nasty. Um, so that puts him, I think that puts him close to 25 kilos ahead of the second place total in that weight class. And one thing to note as well is uh, Mikey Estrella, until very recently competed tested, um, he totaled like 1,420 pounds or so, um, tested at 148, and now he's put close to 200 pounds on that since he's gone untested just in the past like year or so. So he pretty quickly took the untested total record. So it's going to be exciting to see if he just you know, absolutely buries the rest of that class in the next year, or if he can even stay in the 148 class. Um, But anyway, very, very impressive lift for him. And then the last one, and I think this was probably the most controversial recent lift, uh, Julius Maddox, as we predicted on this very podcast, took the all-time super heavyweight bench press record. Uh, previously held by Kirill Sarachev at 335 kilos or 738 pounds. Julius Maddox chipped him, beat him by half a kilo, benched 335.5 or 739.7 pounds. The reason why this lift was controversial is the, the video that's been circulating around has kind of become like the Zapruder tape for powerlifting. Uh, this is a Bruder tape is like the only good video of the JFK assassination. And like people are, people try to piece together what happened from like this one grainy, not all that great video. It's similar with, with the video of this world record. Cause basically what happened is he pressed the weight. The press didn't look that hard. Um, but I think that's just how Julius Maddox benches. Like it either looks pretty quick or just doesn't go up. Um, but it looked like he got the lift cleanly and then he just like dropped the bar on himself, but he did get the rack command from the ref. And so like, as soon as you get the rack command, it's good. Like that's the end of the lift, whether or not the bar gets racked. Yeah. It was just such an ugly video. Anytime something like that happens, you're just like, it's like a train wreck. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you see the bar getting dropped like that, you're like, oh man. Yeah. And and so the reason this has become like the Zapruder tape is it looks like when he locks it out, so he, ha- he has a five spot. Um, there's a back spotter and there's two side spotters. And what looks like happens is as soon as he locks it out, one of the side spotters throws one of his arms up like to start celebrating. And it looks like his other arm bumps the weight. 
And so that would like bump one end up. The other end of the bar did like dip at that moment. And that's when it started going down. But you can't tell for sure from the video if the guy's arm did actually hit the weight. And so like if it did, that I mean, if you're holding 740 pounds over your face and someone nudges it, that seems like a perfectly reasonable reason for it to kind of collapse. Uh, so like if that happened, I feel like that cleans up a lot of the controversy. Like the video still doesn't look any prettier, but like at that point it's not on Julius. But if the guy didn't touch it and it was that he, you know, locked it out, but then just couldn't support it until like, you know, the fraction of a second before he got the rack command, then it is a lot iffier. Um, but I mean, you know, he, he was benching barely over seven, like a year ago. So I'm, I feel like he's going to improve on this record again. The next time he breaks it, he's probably going to do it more cleanly. Um, but yeah, so, so that was the most controversial recent lift. But I mean, it passed. It's on the record books. Julius Maddox is the new king of the bench press. Yeah, and he, like you said, it, it went up quick. Mm-hmm. It seems very unlikely that he would just absolutely manhandle that weight and then at the very top be like, nope, too much. Yeah. You know, so I mean, and, and like you said, I think he's going to beat that in a matter of months anyway. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm in the camp of, I think the spotter touched the bar. Um, but the the controversy is like, you can't tell that for sure. Right. You know? Yeah. But yeah, so that is, uh, that's it for Feats of Strength. Moving on to the next segment. Uh, this is the research review segment of the show. And uh, Eric is going to do a research review regarding antioxidants and muscle hypertrophy. Um, so I think probably a lot of people are aware of some of the literature looking at, say, high dose vitamin C or vitamin E supplementation. And the fact that that may decrease hypertrophy or signaling associated with hypertrophy. But uh, this actually seems to be a somewhat more nuanced um, subject, an area of the research. And uh, Eric is here with the goods. Yeah, so this is going to be a fairly brief research review segment because it's not fully baked yet. And I think I might end up writing an article on this topic because the more I look into it, the more I'm like, ooh, there's... There are some details here that require explanation and, and some deep thought. But what got me on this is there was a paper, a review paper that co- got published um, last month about uh, antioxidants and hypertrophy. And unfortunately, I couldn't access the stinking paper. So I need to email somebody and try to figure out how to get that paper. But just seeing the title, I was like, maybe I'll do a little search of my own. So I start looking into, you know, one of the things I was interested in is what is the proposed mechanism by which these high-dose antioxidants might um, might be interfering with hypertrophy following resistance training. And I started looking at some papers, and one thing that jumped out to me was in a paper by Ito et al. in 2013. That's I-T-O. And what they were suggesting is that the mechanism pertains to peroxynitrite. And if you're me and you did a dissertation on nitric oxide, that is a term that has some significance for you. <laughs> um, so uh, basically w- w- what, they, what they suggested was that peroxynitrite activates something called 
the transient receptor potential cation channel subfamily V member one. And obviously we all know what that is. I mean, that's kind of become a cliche in fitness. I'm kidding. I'd never heard of that in my entire life. Um, but yeah, so basically a uh, fun fact about that particular receptor is that it's also referred to as the capsaicin receptor. So am I suggesting that red, pe- red pepper and chili pepper will make you enormous? I am. Yeah, one weird trick, capsaicin. So uh, Eric Helms, our nemesis, along with the country of the Netherlands, yep. uh, he reviewed a paper for mass, I think over two years ago at this point. It was one of our, er- our earlier issues. Um about capsaicin and how it could improve if memory serves on that paper it was looking at repeated sprint performance um but it seemed to have fairly notable effects there and the the thing about the thing about capsaicin that a lot of people don't realize is that like you eat it 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 it's hot in your mouth i think people realize that yeah it, uh, come on <laughs> come on eric I'm getting to the part people don't realize. Um, but like Eric noted, there is this receptor that is sometimes called the capsaicin receptor. And that's kind of everywhere in your body. And so when you eat hot foods, it not only makes your mouth burn, it also has systemic effects. And you probably experience some of those. Like you feel like your body temperature is going up. You start sweating. I think a lot of people assume that that is just in response to your mouth burning, but that's actually due to the fact that capsaicin does have systemic effects. If you put capsaicin in a capsule, um, and so, you know, it never burns your mouth in the first place, it will still have a lot of those same effects because it it has impacts on... And I, I won't go so far as to say most, because I don't know if that's true, but a lot of tissues of your body beyond just your mouth. Yeah, capsaicin is something that I, I'm going to pencil in some time to do a deep dive on capsaicin because you look at it and you see it, it's implicated when it comes to thermogenesis, performance, as you mentioned, satiety, satiety was the one I was going to mention as well. Um, And now potentially some mechanism pertaining to hypertrophy. Um, It's just a really fascinating uh, thing capsaicin mm-hmm. so i i want to look into it more and see how much of this is interesting how much is useful because it's not always the same thing mm-hmm. but in any case th- this paper was indicating that the pro- proposed mechanism was that peroxynitrite um, activates this particular receptor which causes an activation of the mTOR pathway and the idea was that high dose antioxidants reduce the formation of peroxynitrite and that that might be this, uh, the mechanism relating to this apparent interference. And I, I mentioned, you know, I, I've done some work with nitric oxide, and that's why peroxy nitrite jumped out to me. If you look at um, the metabolic fates of nitric oxide, a lot of people know nitric oxide, you create it, and it disappears almost immediately. Um, it, it's half-life in the blood. The estimates vary because it's so small, but you, you're, it's rare to see an estimate of more than a second or two mm-hmm. in terms of like the half-life of nitric oxide. The question is, where does it go? And the answer is it could go a lot of places, but one of the metabolic fates is it is uh, turned into peroxynitrite. However, that conversion is drastically reduced in the presence of antioxidants. And so 
the the thing that's tricky is there's it, there's a little give and take here. So antioxidants shuttle nitric oxide toward other metabolic fates that in the short term would be more favorable. You're, it, they essentially help recycle the nitric oxide into uh, various different pathways that are acutely more favorable in terms of sustaining nitric oxide activity and theoretically enhancing performance. But it would appear that, you know, from our current understanding, if you blunt that peroxynitrite production effectively enough, that might interfere with hypertrophy potentially. And so this is really interesting because we have known for some time that there is some link between nitric oxide and hypertrophy. There have been uh, some rodent studies specifically that have shown if we give these really potent drugs that increase nitric oxide, uh, you know, if we pharmacologically really ramp up nitric oxide production, it seems to be quite good for hypertrophy. If we totally blunt its its production, it seems to be quite, quite bad for hypertrophy. So it's one more wrinkle that kind of enhances our understanding of the relationship between antioxidants and hypertrophy, but also uh, between nitric oxide and hypertrophy potentially. Now, the solution here is kind of up in the air, but I think the I, I think the solution is to look for some kind of a middle ground. So if we could have enough antioxidants that we are helping support nitric oxide production and function during the bout in a way that would uh, generally be advantageous for acute performance purposes, but not have such a big dose of antioxidants that we totally blunt this peroxynitrite formation, that seems to me like it might be a very nice middle ground where we can still enhance performance acutely without interfering with training adaptations because one without the other is they're they're very different applications of why you might use a nitric oxide supplement or why you might use an antioxidant supplement um, now there is one study a longitudinal study looking at a nitric oxide donor supplement uh, and it actually was paired with an antioxidant uh, because people have known for quite some time that antioxidants uh, do uh, promote the bioactivity and the production of nitric oxide and, and help to maintain its, its bioactivity when it is produced. So there's a study by Huang et al. in 2018 out of Darren Willoughby's lab. They were looking at a product that was uh, 200 milligrams of reduced glutathione, which is an antioxidant, uh, combined with 2 grams a day of L-citrulline. Now, there are all sorts of caveats when, inter when interpreting this study. Um, it's, a, it's a nice study. It's a thorough one. It's, it's one that I, I've read several times. Uh, big sample size. They had a nice training program. Like they, they did things well here. Now, a couple of the issues. It's a very low dose of citrulline compared to the rest of the citrulline literature. Usually a citrulline dose, you're, you're thinking it's going to be somewhere in the three to six gram range uh, of, of the actual citrulline contribution. Uh, so two is a bit low, uh, but I think what they were thinking is they were studying a pre-made formulation. So, I mean, it's not like they had wiggle room there, but I think also the, the concept is that when you pair it with the antioxidant, you can get away with a lower dose of the nitric oxide precursor. Um, now, the other thing is the antioxidant in the mix was glutathione, and the evidence is a little bit mixed. 
in the literature about exactly how much oral bioavailability there is with glutathione. There are some papers suggesting it might be all right, others suggesting it's pretty poor. Um, One of the big caveats, though, is the whole point of the study was to figure out if we give an antioxidant with a nitric oxide donor or nitric oxide precursor, is it going to help with muscle growth? And probably the biggest caveat is nobody grew. (laughs) Like you look at the training program, the training program should have been a very sufficient stimulus for the accretion of lean mass. Uh, It's four days a week, upper lower split, uh, plenty of volume. It should have been enough to do the trick. And sometimes the way it goes in research is it just wasn't. So um, after accounting for changes in total body water, the placebo group increased uh, lean mass by negative 0.8 kilos. The citrulline malate, there's three groups in it, one taking just a low dose of citrulline malate, they increased by 0.1 kilos. And then the citrulline with glutathione increased by 0.1 kilos. So, um, you know, I, I guarantee when they were planning the study, they were thinking, okay, placebo group stays the same. Theoretically, we should see big, or I'm sorry, placebo group will grow because it's training, right? Mm-hmm. But then we'll see whether or not the glutathione and citrulline are having additive effects. And it would have been really cool if the placebo group grew, the citrulline group grew a little more, but then the citrulline with glutathione group really grew mm-hmm. because the glutathione was helping uh, nitric oxide essentially do its thing. Or, or if, you know, the placebo group grew, the citrulline malate group grew more, and the glutathione and citrulline group grew the same as the placebo, thus indicating that the presence of the antioxidant may have blunted the response. Yeah, th- that would have... Any, any sort of interaction between the supplements would have been neat. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm... Yeah, when I say what would have been cool, that's certainly what the sponsor of the study would have hoped yeah, for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, their whole thing is they, they think that this inclusion of antioxidants is, is a, a novel thing to promote the effect of citrulline. Uh, but yeah, any the, of those outcomes would have been quite fascinating. That's weird that they went with glutathione, though, because like... If memory serves, the reason that people take alpha-lipoic acid is because it increases endogenous glutathione production. And I think it does have pretty decent oral bioavailability. So, like, if these people are making a supplement professionally and putting it on the market, you would think that they would go with the thing that was actually tested versus the thing that may not actually get into your blood in the first place. Yeah, it's true. I don't know what to tell you, man. Fair enough. It's a good point. Now, uh, the question is, what do we do about this? Um, because like, we have that one study that theoretically could have shed a lot of light on it, but it's just nobody grew. Stuff happens. Um, I still think it's generally a good idea, as I always say, to the default should be a relatively high nitrate diet just because of the numerous benefits of the fruits and vegetables that tend to be high in nitrate. Like, you're never going to regret the fact that you ate plenty of spinach and celery and berries and stuff. Like it, you're going to be all right. Um, if you want to go the nitric oxide route, I, I, I've got an article on the website about nitric oxide that goes to all the ins and outs of how it affects performance and maybe hypertrophy. I think you can at least say it doesn't seem problematic when the nitric oxide is paired with naturally occurring antioxidants in that food matrix. 
So like interventions with uh, watermelon juice as citrulline seem to be fine. There are even some longitudinal interventions with beetroot juice where there obviously are antioxidant compounds in the juice naturally, um, where it does not seem to impair any of the training adaptations uh, over four weeks. The studies I'm thinking of were looking at uh, interval like sprint training, but it did not seem to impair uh, muscular training adaptations at that level. I do think tentatively, until we figure out more, I think it does make sense to avoid super high dose antioxidant supplements if the purpose of the training is to induce adaptations, which it almost always is. Now, for acute performance instances, that might be a little bit different. But but when we're talking day-to-day training, I don't it doesn't seem like a super awesome idea currently to go with really, really high dose antioxidant supplements. Eric, I have just a general question for you. Okay. Um, have you seen any literature comparing, I guess, like different kinds of antioxidants? So one of the things I've heard, which I don't know if this is true at all or not, is that the effects on training adaptations are different if you're talking like taking high doses of exogenous vitamin C or vitamin E versus if like your body's endogenous uh, antioxidant system ramps up. So, you know, one of the adaptations to aerobic training, I'm pretty sure is you get an increase in um, like endogenous production of glutathione and other endogenous antioxidants. So like, are you aware of any research on that? Or is that just, is that maybe just an idea that people have put forth that, isn't really research. Like I, I honestly have no idea about that. If I were to wildly speculate, um, I would definitely imagine there's a pretty pronounced distinction between endogenous versus exogenous antioxidant capacity in the sense that I, I wouldn't, I, I think it'd be very easy to exogenously just kind of flood the body with a lot of with a, a high dose of compounds with high antioxidant capacity mm-hmm. that would exceed the adaptation you would experience of the endogenous system, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I, I think you could acutely manipulate the system to a much greater degree mm-hmm. with the exogenous. So I would speculate that that might be what's going on. I think one of the interesting questions would be if you look at the types of antioxidants that exist, there are numerous So Mm -hmm. to say antioxidants, like people who actually study that stuff are like, what are you kidding me? Like there are so many different compounds that fall under that umbrella of, you know, a quote unquote antioxidant. Mm -hmm. One thing that I would be interested in is looking at these very different exogenous sources of antioxidants and Mm -hmm. do certain ones impair adaptations and do other ones not impair and i don't know i I would imagine that so when you look at antioxidant load uh there are different assays to quantify the overall antioxidant potential of a particular food or ingredient Mm -hmm. um or compound and so there's a really good paper by carlson et al that was published in 2012 It has the antioxidant content or the antioxidant capacity 
of over 3,100 foods and supplements. Jesus Christ. So for all of them, they said per 100 grams, based on the assay that we think is most appropriate, what is their ability to scavenge reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen species, generally speaking? So it's a really good resource, that particular paper. And I think uh, one of the things that I'd be interested in is, aside from just total antioxidant capacity, do different types of antioxidants have different effects? Because they are very different compounds uh, and are categorized accordingly. So I think we still have a tremendous amount to learn about how antioxidants affect I think we have a good idea of their acute effects, but I think we we have a lot to learn about their chronic effects in the context of a training program and how they might interfere with training adaptations. And I think that's going to come down to the the dose. And and Mm -hmm. by that, I mean the overall capacity to scavenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also going to come down to, I I think it's worth looking at all these different types and, and how they might have potentially differential or even synergistic effects possibly but in the meantime i think at the very least we know that there are certain antioxidants that in very high exogenous doses they do seem to inhibit some adaptations to training um i think we we certainly know that they do uh increase the bioactivity of nitric oxide but if that's at the expense of limiting training adaptations, that doesn't seem like a good a good trade-off if we're talking day-to-day training applications. Yeah, so, so like if anything, it could be the inverse creatine. We, we've talked about this before on the podcast, how folks kind of use creatine as like a model supplement um, and aren't aware of all of its mechanisms of action such that, you know, we see creatine acutely improves performance like reps to failure type stuff um, like single session volume capacity and people assume that well we know that that occurs we see that creatine helps improve training adaptations therefore you know its ability to help you do more work is what's driving those things you had a really really good article about creatine for stronger by science where you also looked through some of the other things that creatine does and other pathways by which it promotes hypertrophy beyond just acutely improving work capacity. And so it would be interesting if nitric oxide is the exact opposite where, you know, maybe if you, if you do something to boost nitric oxide signaling via, you know, adding antioxidants, it acutely improves performance, but has negative effects on adaptations. And this is where the the picture gets even more complicated, though, is because in the absence of those nitric oxide, or in the absence of a high-dose antioxidant, if you introduce a ton of nitric oxide, theoretically, that could also increase the production of peroxynitrite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so then it's like, well, what is the balance of increasing the nitric oxide for acute performance benefit, potentially even to some extent increasing peroxynitrite maybe but generally speaking if you look at the literature peroxynitrite is a bad word Mm -hmm. you do like you you don't want runaway production of peroxynitrite that's not something anyone would shoot for when it comes to the general why is that peroxynitrite is associated with uh damaging both proteins and potentially 
DNA and RNA in the cell. Um, generally not what you want. So if I want to leave humanity behind, as it were, <laughs> how much peroxynitrite should I, should I aim for? You know, I, I don't think I can give you a specific dose. More research is needed. But yeah, so peroxynitrite. Peroxynitrite. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why people, I, I think it's one contributing thing of why people say, oh, antioxidants are great. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets rid of all the bad stuff, right? Like antioxidants, people treat it like this anti-aging miracle mm-hmm. because it scavenges a lot of these different things or reduces their production that are associated with damaging proteins and damaging DNA. I mean, Linus Pauling was incredibly influential. He was. But um, so, so that the interesting thing is how... What's the balance where we have enough nitric oxide to acutely promote performance, enough antioxidants to increase its bioactivity without blunting the peroxynitrite, which appears to be uh, promoting some of these training adaptations, including hypertrophy. Basically, it's a mess. It's a very complicated interwoven web of factors. And the thing that I found most interesting about it was I was reading a paper purely about antioxidants, and I was like, this has huge implications for nitric oxide as well. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I said it's kind of a, I wouldn't say a half-baked idea for the research review, but it's not fully baked because there's something there when it comes to the balance between nitric oxide precursors and the appropriate dose of antioxidant either in that particular combination or in the diet overall. I think for now, it seems safe to conclude that super high dose antioxidants are not great for training adaptations, including hypertrophy. Peroxynitrite may be uh, a particularly influential part of that. Um, But in terms of the exact titration there of antioxidants in the diet, I just don't know yet. But certainly, I would not advise that anybody avoid getting dietary sources of of antioxidants in, in, you know, moderate to high amounts. So eating a generally nutritious diet still seems like the way to go. But I mean, it kind of loops back to what we said about these, um, how my my view of nutrition has gone from very mechanistic to uh, ultimately defaulting toward good eating patterns. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the mechanism is, like you mentioned, Linus Pauling, some of these antioxidants and vitamins seem really nice. What if we took in like completely insane amounts of each? Like, mm-hmm. well, it doesn't work out as well as we thought. And so I feel the same way in this particular instance of antioxidants. Should we just jam them in with training? It'll help with the acute recovery. It'll acutely increase the bioactivity of nitric oxide. Well, it turns out once again, we kind of whiffed it does seem to, to some extent, blunt training adaptations, including hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So eat your vegetables, uh, train hard. And that's all I got. Sounds good. All right. So I guess it was a few days ago now. Um, the website Stronger by Science, an article went up by our very own Greg Knuckles. The article was called The Evidence is Lacking for Effective Reps. And As we've done on the show previously, one of the cool things about the podcast is that after we publish an article on the site, we have an opportunity to see what the feedback is like, uh, and the podcast gives us a great opportunity to clarify things, discuss kind of how people receive the article, any questions that came up uh, from from readers. 
so we do want to take some time to talk about this article. So before we get into that, Greg, can you explain what the general concept of effective reps is? Yeah, so the the nugget of the idea behind effective reps is basically for for a rep of an exercise to promote hypertrophy, it needs to be close enough to failure that it's kind of hard. Um, and, and the reason for that is basically a lot of the mechanistic work looking at what kicks off muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy shows that like you need it shows that one your highest threshold motor units are probably the ones that are the most susceptible to hypertrophy and so they're not going to be recruited unless a load is adequately heavy or until you're close enough to failure so um an implication of Hinneman's size principle which is just like a very foundational aspect of muscle physiology is that as loads increase, more and more motor units are recruited. And then also with lighter loads, if you take them to failure for the first few reps, most of just like lower threshold motor units will be recruited. And then as they start fatiguing and you get closer and closer to failure, more and more of your high threshold motor units will eventually be recruited. So, you know, either doing reps with heavy weight or doing lighter weight all the way to failure, both of those things will eventually recruit all of your motor units. So the idea being that until you get pretty close to failure, you probably haven't really tapped into those highest threshold motor units. And then the other thing is most of the at least best characterized um, physiological pathways that initiate muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy uh, are related to muscular tension in some way, shape, or form. So essentially, there's um, there's little things, uh, th- there's spots where the muscle fiber is attached to the um, like connective tissue matrix that surrounds each muscle fiber and also runs through the muscle. And it seems like a lot of the actual like molecular pathways that eventually trigger muscle protein synthesis have a lot to do with those little adhesion points. And when tension is put on the fiber and it kind of pulls on those adhesion points that uh, activates like various kinases that then trigger the processes that eventually lead to muscle protein synthesis. So those are are tension-based processes. So the idea is you need to both recruit motor units and then also expose those fibers to enough tension that it's going to, to kick off all of the hypertrophy cascade. And the the notion here is that with with weights that aren't like super heavy, so weights that aren't like five rep max or below, you're probably not recruiting all of your motor units from the first rep. And you can probably move each rep pretty quickly. And when you're moving a rep pretty quickly, um, you, you don't have enough time to form enough actin myosin cross bridges within each fiber for there to be a ton of tension on the fiber. So basically like if you're grinding a one rep max or if you're doing like something plyometric, you're probably recruiting all or most of your motor units for both of those two things. But there's way more tension when you're doing the one rep max because the plyometric is very explosive. The shortening velocity is high. There's just not that much time for too many cross bridges to form to create tension, which is 
why like, you know, if you grind out several sets of 10 to failure, you grow quite a bit. You do some jumps, you don't grow all that much. Um, so, so that's kind of the idea, like the kernel of the idea behind effective reps. You need to recruit those high threshold motor units and you need to, to get movement velocity low enough that each fiber can be exposed to a whole lot of tension. The idea some people have is to maximize tension, uh, on each fiber, which they propose will, will occur right before failure. And and this idea is, uh, gotten a lot of traction, right? Like you did a little poll on your Instagram the other Mm -hmm. day, basically saying like, essentially the question was like, how favorably do you view this effective reps idea? Was that essentially what you asked? Yeah. So, so the original poll I think had two options. One was it's legit. And the other is it's bogus. And then like a bunch of people messaged me. It's like, Oh, it's probably more complicated than that. It's like, dude, you can only give two fucking options for an Instagram poll. Like calm down. Uh, so then I added another like slide to my Instagram story that says like, you can also interpret this as like mostly correct or like mostly incorrect. And and I added that within like 30 minutes of the poll going up. But anyway, so like 2,500 people voted in that and it was like 62% in favor of effective reps being a a valid model and 38% against. And, And so there's, um, there's various, like quite a few people have have put forward various ideas for effective reps. Um, Chris Beardsley's model is probably the most well known, so that's what my article was critiquing. But James Krieger has put forth a similar idea. Carl Juneau, and I'm gonna butcher his name, but I, I think you pronounce it Borge. Um, but everyone calls him Borge because. I think no one knows how to pronounce his name. <laughs> We're not the people to ask about it. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so they've all put forth various uh, effective reps-esque concepts, but uh, Chris Beardsley's idea is the one that has gotten the most traction. Um, and it is essentially the idea that the last five reps before failure are the ones that are effective. Those are the ones where basically all of the motor units have been recruited and there's going to be enough tension per fiber to to trigger hypertrophy. Um, and he's he has spelled it out in such a way that at least makes it seem that each one of those five would be similarly effective. So um, he's like gone through like different scenarios like, oh, if you do you know, four sets to failure or four sets, one rep shy of failure, four sets, two reps shy of failure. Like this is how many effective reps you would get. And that very much makes it seem like it's not like, oh, maybe the rep before failure is the one that's actually the most effective. And like the one five reps out is a little effective, but not as close. Like it's, it's a pretty straightforward model where basically if it's within five reps of failure, it counts. If it's more than five reps out, it doesn't count. Um, so like an implication of that is if you did four reps or if you did four sets to failure, that would get you four more effective reps than four sets, one rep shy of failure. You'd get 20 effective reps. Uh, so the last five of each set, if you did four sets to failure, you'd only get 16 effective reps or the last four of each set. If you did four sets, one rep shy of failure. So another implication there is if you, you know, kind of do traditional strength training where, you know, you're probably terminating most sets 
two to three reps shy of failure, then you would probably need to do eight sets to get the same hypertrophic effect as four sets to failure. So just kind of throwing some some concrete implications of the model out there. Um, and so the thing about this concept of effective reps is it has some degree of mechanistic support. Um, so for example, if you look at research where um, like people are doing isometric exercise at different percentages of, of maximum voluntary isometric contraction, it seems like working up to about 80-85% of MVIC, that's like the range in which motor unit recruitment does increase. And past about 80% or so, most of the further increase in force just has to do with increases in motor unit firing rates. Um, and there's also some research looking at surface EMG for single joint exercises, finding that when you get about five-ish reps from failure, um, for single joint exercises, EMG plateaus. And you don't get further increases in EMG as you get closer to failure. So EMG isn't, it's not like one-to-one the same thing as motor unit recruitment, but the two things do correlate reasonably well. Um, And there's also like direct evidence showing that you do need pretty slow contraction speeds to maximize per fiber tension, uh, essentially because the rate at which uh, actin-myosin detachment can occur is um, like pretty variable, but the rate at which attachment or the rate at which detachment can occur is pretty variable, but the rate that attachment can occur is fixed and reasonably low. And so with really high fiber shortening velocities, you get uh, like fiber detachment rates can exceed attachment rates. So only like a fairly small percentage of your like actin and myosin cross bridges potential are actually forming. But with slower contraction velocities, the attachment and detachment rates can match up better. And so you can get much higher uh, for per fiber tension. Um, so anyway, that that's the mechanistic idea. There is mechanistic evidence uh, underlying that. And there is also some degree of experimental evidence to back this up. So the two studies that I think most people would cite as evidence for the concept of effective reps is one back from like 2004-2005 by Goto et al., uh, and then a more recent one by Martorelli and colleagues. And so in the Goto study, basically you had two groups doing four sets of 10. One of the group was taking those sets to failure, and the other group was taking like a 30-second break between reps five and six of each set. And so with that 30-second intraset break, they weren't taking each set to failure because they were getting a little bit of rest in between. Uh, And in that study, they were doing knee extensions and they were measuring quad growth. And they found that the group uh, doing those four, doing those 10 reps straight through without the break in the middle did grow considerably more. It was like two and a half times more. And then in the more recent Martorelli study, um, untrained women were doing bicep curls at 70% of their max. One group was doing three sets to failure. One group was doing three sets of seven, which would probably be five or six-ish reps from failure. 
And one group was doing four sets of seven, which was like trying to match volume load with the three sets to failure group. Um, Do you think seven is the least common number of reps to prescribe? I think like in the history so. of lifting, I've never heard of someone being like, give me a good seven here. I don't see many fours either. Oh, I do fours all the time. I don't think that many people do fours. Uh, don't talk to my clients. I, I see a lot of heavy triples. And then, of course, five. Yeah. But yeah, don't see too many fours. I, I do fours all the time, but sevens are off the table. I would never dare prescribe a seven. Sure. Um, but anyway, so in in the Martorelli study, the the increase in biceps thickness, I think it was like 18.5% in the failure group, uh, like 8.5% in the four sets of seven group, and like 2% in the three sets of seven group. So pretty big difference there. Um, so th- that's kind of like the evidence in favor of this effective reps model. Um, but there are problems with it. So the research show the research suggesting increased motor unit recruitment up to about 80-85% of one rep max or about five reps shy of failure. Most of that is looking at single joint exercises. Um, and you can also find it some with like multi-joint exercises with untrained lifters. But there's actually several studies using trained lifters doing multi-joint exercises, finding that the prime movers might be pretty close to full motor unit recruitment at considerably lower loads further from failure. So there was a recent study by Vanden Tillar uh, and colleagues looking at the squat, uh, and it was looking at uh, quadriceps. So I think every head of the quads, except for the vastus intermedius, it was looking at, at quadricep, uh, hamstring, and glute EMG with increasing loads, and found that with loads between like 50% and 90% of one rep max uh, for like the first rep of each set quad EMG was the same. Um, so, and, and there's actually modeling research by uh, Bryanton and colleagues um, using a measure called relative muscular effort, which is essentially the, the external moments presented by an exercise divided by the joint moments kind of measured in a single joint way that lifters can produce like in isolation. Uh, And so that study found that relative muscular effort in the squat basically didn't change with increased loads. And and so that does actually seem to match with, uh, with EMG as well. And so also in that study, it looked again at hamstring and glute EMG, and it did see that those were going up with increased load. And so the quads are probably... If you had to choose one prime mover in the squat, it is probably the quads. And so the prime mover, pretty high EMG from the get-go. Some of the like secondary supporting muscles increased EMG as, as load goes up. Uh, similar with uh, an older study by McBride and colleagues. Uh, it looked at quad and hamstring EMG with uh, 70, 80, and 90% loads. It found that quad EMG at 70%, pretty much the same as 90%. Um, but hamstring EMG, again, was much higher at 90% than 70%. So again, prime mover EMG, pretty high, even at fairly low loads, like 70% reasonably low. Um, but a secondary muscle, in that case, the hamstrings, ramping up as load increases. Uh, and then there was also a study from a couple years back by Kroll and Golis looking at increasing loads in the bench press. 
And it found that PEC EMG also basically the same between uh, 70% one rep max loads and actual one rep max loads. But the EMG of uh, the front delts, triceps, and maybe lats also did go up with increasing loads. So again, if you had to pick a prime mover in the bench press, it's probably going to be the pecs. Uh, don't tell Louie I said that. Um, but this, the secondary muscles, your triceps, front delts, those EMG is going up as loads increase. So it very well could be that kind of first assumption of the effective reps model that you do need full recruitment and you need to go pretty close to failure or pretty heavy loads to get that full recruitment. I think that is very much true with single joint exercises, but I'm not confident that that is actually true with trained lifters doing multi-joint exercises, um, especially if you're interested in the prime movers. So for example, if you're interested in squatting for hamstring growth, one, that's kind of dumb. Like we've written about that on the site before. But two, if you were doing that, you know, maybe it would behoove you to go to failure on every set. But if, if you're squatting for quad growth, you know, you may not have to actually go that close to failure to to stimulate your quads pretty well. Um, and then the second assumption there, like needing pretty slow contractile velocities to achieve full tension on each fiber. I'm pretty skeptical of that. Uh, and the reason I'm skeptical of it is, so that's largely based on the load velocity relationship or, or the, the force velocity curve, where at, um, at higher forces, velocities lower at lower velocities or at, at lower forces, velocity is higher. But that again is established under unfatigued conditions. So essentially, um, you know, if you're having a fiber contract against increasing loads, as the loads go up, contraction velocity decreases, but under conditions of fatigue, it's not the exact same relationship. Under conditions of fatigue, uh, if velocity is go uh, fatigue with the same load, just to be clear, uh, as velocity is going down, force is also going down. Like force and tension aren't increasing as velocity decreases as you do, say, like a set of 12 to failure. Uh, like velocity is going to be lowest on the last rep before failure, but I don't think you can make the case that per fiber tension is higher. At that point, your fibers have fatigued. Um, there's going to be some metabolites in there that affect the interactions between actin and myosin. And also like central drive is going to decrease. So um, the the frequency with which, uh, or the frequency at which motor units or the motor nerves can reach depolarization and send signals to the fibers, like fi firing rates, that's going to be lower as well. So I don't think the lower velocities closer to failure during a set to failure with a fixed load indicates higher tension per fiber. I think it indicates that you can't produce as much tension per fiber. So if you're using high per fiber tension as a as a reason supporting the effective reps model, I don't think that you can make that argument in the context of a set to failure. So lower velocity is lower tension in that case, not the same as like the force velocity relationship with changing loads when you're fresh. 
So anyway, the um, the biggest thing I'm trying to get at here is that the mechanistic underpinnings of the effective reps model, um, they make sense insofar as recruiting those highest threshold motor units and exposing them to a fair amount of tension. Those things make sense based on what we mechanistically know about hypertrophy. But the idea that you necessarily need to be within five reps of failure to trigger those things, I'm less sold on. I think you can get pretty close to full motor unit recruitment for the prime movers of multi-joint exercises quite a bit further out from failure. And I don't actually think uh, you're maximizing per fiber tension as you get closer to failure. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't get more growth closer to failure, but I think the, the idea that that is what's maximizing per fiber tension and that is then what is promoting hypertrophy. I, I think um, the evidence in favor of that comes from studies on the wrong context, which is looking at unfatigued fibers with different loads versus under the influence of fatigue taking the same load to failure. Um, so in the article on the website, I would, I would recommend you check that out because there's a pretty big part in the middle of the article where I also discuss a muscle fiber bait or a, a motor unit based model of muscle fatigue from Potvin, uh, Potvin and colleagues. And my understanding is that it is the, um, the most generally accepted motor unit based model of fatigue that is published in the literature, but it also doesn't make sense to discuss on this podcast because it's very, very visual and you will get bored as fuck if I attempt to explain it. And I would also do a terrible job explaining it. So the the main point that I wanted to extract from the Podfin model is also just that like your very highest threshold motor units probably are never under maximal tension ever in any context except for like a maximal isometric. So we have longitudinal research um, from from Morton and colleagues out of Stu Phillips lab um, looking at um, fiber type specific hypertrophy with like training at 50% versus 80% one rep max. We see that um, we see that both type one and type two fiber growth is pretty similar training at both intensities. But if you look at Potvin's model, like there's a very low chance that most of your highest threshold motor units are getting anywhere particularly close to maximal tension, even as you approach failure with like 50% MVIC contractions. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that you you do need to expose a fiber to maximal tension for uh, robust hypertrophy in the first place. So check out the article. Look at look at the Potvin model stuff. Um, I'm not going to attempt to explain it in more depth than that here on the podcast. So I mean, generally speaking, it sounds like there are smart people who know their stuff who have talked about this effective reps model, mm -hmm. and it's not that the entire thing is you know, completely off base, but it sounds like the, the problem is when people get extremely technical with the theoretical underpinnings or take the interpretation or the application extremely literally. Is, is that like a fair characterization? Uh, so like, cause I mean, theoretically we would know with, with training, 
obviously we have to, if we're trying to induce hypertrophy, we have to apply tension to the fiber. We have to induce some semblance of fatigue. Mm-hmm. And that those two things are probably both driving some degree of hypertrophy. And that if you are doing these reps that are somewhere near failure with reasonably heavy loads, it's at least getting you in the ballpark, right? Yeah. So I, I think I think something worth discussing is like why I wrote this article in the first place. Sure. And I think it's that um, three reasons, I would say. So the first reason is I rarely critique ideas that I don't think have much purchase with my audience. So like there's a lot of shit out there that I generally disagree with that no one or that like, you know, maybe 2% of my audience would actually agree with. You were a really late adopter for urine injections, for example. Correct. You, you didn't really get into it. You didn't write about it much until recently. Right. So, so for the most part, I'm not going to critique an idea if I don't think that the people I'm reaching are the people who need to be reached with the, the critique of that idea. Um, and so I know that the effective reps model of hypertrophy does have significant purchase within my audience. And so, you know, I'm not just like crying out in the wilderness about something that no one in my audience actually believes and that the only effect is just I'm preaching to the choir and I'm going to get kudos for telling people shit that they already agree with, you know. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is... So I start pretty much anything looking at the actual experimental evidence. Like theories can sound good, but if it doesn't match what we've actually observed, um, it's you kind of have to go back to the drawing board, right? And so um, also in the article, I looked at the studies that had, to, to my mind, tested the effective reps model of hypertrophy idea the most rigorously. So these would be studies with like, quote unquote, normal training. So, you know, not looking at rest paused or uh, drop sets or anything like that, but just, you know, normal multi-set training um, with one group going closer to failure or to failure every set and at least one other group uh, staying further from failure than the other group that are matched for intensity and either matched for total number of sets done or total number of reps done. And when you actually look at the experimental evidence, you don't actually see that much like direct tangible evidence for the effective reps model. So those two studies I previously mentioned by Godot and Martorelli, they do provide strong evidence in favor of the effective reps model of hypertrophy. There are six other studies that kind of investigate the idea and they just don't support this concept. Um, so there's two other studies on untrained lifters doing multi-joint exercises. One is by Samson, one is by Nobrega. They tend to find no difference between groups going to failure or not to failure. There are some issues with those studies. Um, the Samson study, the non-failure groups were still doing one set per week to failure to for load progression's sake. Uh, and the Nobrega study the conditions not going to failure were basically going to RPE 10. So you essentially had two conditions that were actually failing every set and the other conditions basically going to failure still. Um, But so like there are those four studies in untrained lifters doing single joint exercises and altogether they find that 
going to failure or closer to failure causes about twice as much growth. In just the Godot and Martorelli studies, which don't have those issues similar to the other studies I mentioned, uh, it's like a threefold difference. So like that looks like pretty strong experimental evidence in favor of uh, this this model of hypertrophy that like going close to failure and getting those reps close to failure does make a big difference. Um, but then there are four studies on trained lifters that don't they just don't support the idea at all. Um, so there was a really recent study by Karsten et al. Um, it looked at three measures of hypertrophy: one group doing four sets of ten to failure, one group doing eight sets of five, not anywhere close to failure. It did find a significant difference in favor of the failure group for quad hypertrophy, but triceps and delt hypertrophy were similar between groups. Um, the the study that or one of the studies that Eric Helms did for his uh, PhD. Who? To be clear, different person than Eric Trexler. Eric Helms is not on this podcast. Oh. Um, so one of the studies he did for his PhD, it was looking at uh, RPE-based training versus percentage-based training, but he still got RPEs for people in both groups after each set. Uh, and the groups, the group doing RPE-based training was training like one to three reps closer to failure than the percentage-based group throughout the entire program. Uh, for bench press and squat, they looked at pec and quad growth, and it was similar between groups in spite of differences in proximity to failure between groups. Uh, a study by Pereja Blanco comparing training four, four sets of squats with a 40% velocity loss per set versus four sets with a 20% velocity loss per set. So basically, you know, if you move the first rep at one meter per second, one group would terminate the set when they got to a velocity of 0.6. The other group would terminate when they got to a velocity of 0.8. So in effect, the the 40% velocity loss group took like 56% of their sets to failure. They did a lot of reps that were grinders. The The 20% velocity loss group, on average, I think the subjects only did like 10 reps during the entire program where velocity was less than like 0.5 meters per second. So like they did basically no grinders, probably did no, like virtually no quote unquote effective reps. Uh, that study looked at quad muscle volume and also uh, fiber cross-sectional area of in the vastus lateralis. No significant differences there. Um, and then a recent study by Carroll was comparing one program where uh, they did, where one of the groups took the last set of every exercise to failure, mostly doing three sets per exercise. So probably one group, like two-ish reps from, or one set, two-ish reps from failure. Next set, probably about one rep from failure. Last set, two failure. So fair amount of like, quote unquote, effective reps versus another group that was training mostly like two to eight reps from failure. Um, so like not that close. So it, it was reps is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was basically one, one day where they were like two to four reps from failure. And so th there, there were three days of training, but they only looked at quad hypertrophy and the only like serious quad exercise in, in the study was squats. And so they were squatting twice a week. And so one group was was doing three sets, terminating in failure on the third set, uh, both days. And then the other group uh, was training like two to four reps from failure one day, and then like 
pretty easy the second day. Okay. Uh, and so in that study, they looked at uh, full muscle anatomical cross-sectional area of the vastus lateralis. They looked at muscle thickness of the vastus lateralis. And they looked at fiber cross-sectional area for type 1 and type 2 fibers. The only significant difference between groups was anatomical cross-sectional area of the quads, which was in favor of the group training further from failure. And the other three measures kind of leaned in favor of that group as well. And so basically what you see when you look at the experimental evidence is in untrained subjects doing single joint exercises, the concept of effective reps tracks pretty well with the experimental evidence. Uh, groups training closer to failure, doing more of those reps within five reps of failure, do see considerably more hypertrophy. And in the two studies that don't that didn't have like the, well, was the other group actually training to failure sometimes issue, it was like a threefold difference in hypertrophy. Like that's, that's pretty good. Um, but then in the four studies on trained lifters, mostly doing multi-joint exercises, there's no difference whatsoever. Uh, I think it was like in average for across like all measures of hypertrophy in those studies, it was like an average of like a 9% increase for the group doing fewer quote unquote effective reps and like a eight and a half percent increase in the group doing like more quote unquote effective reps. Um, so like, I mean, maybe it only applies to untrained lifters, which is something, but also probably aren't the people that that, that are digging into like me- mechanisms of hypertrophy type articles on the internet. Yeah, it's like I'm three weeks in, but I'd really like to learn more. Yeah. And so, th- so that was the second reason. So I wanted to talk about this one significant purchase within my audience. Two doesn't seem to track that well with the actual like longitudinal experimental evidence. And then the third reason was that Kind of, I don't think that we should have models that are more specific than what our current level of knowledge grant, grants us the right to have. So essentially, if you have really granular evidence, then you can make a granular model based on that evidence. And and we just don't have enough granular evidence to know that like, you know, five reps from failure, that's the line, that's when reps become effective. And so like, a soft version of the effective reps idea would be like, well, to maximize hypertrophy on a per set basis, you have to go eh, at least kind of close to failure. I don't think anyone is going to argue that, you know, you take 70% of your max, you do three sets to 12, or you do three triples again at 70%, which is probably going to be like nine or 10 reps from failure. I don't think anyone's going to argue that you're going to get similar per set hypertrophy there. I don't think anyone would like everyone would argue, well, you have to go at least kind of close to failure. Right. Um, If you don't go until shit gets hard, you're not going to grow, you know? So like a soft version of the effective reps idea is that, well, you do have to kind of go close to failure to grow. But at that point, it's not an effective reps model. That's, that's an answer you could get from literally anyone at the gym. Like you, you ask them, how close do I have to go to failure to grow? Some people are going to say, ah, oh, got to go to failure every set. Some people are going to say, eh, eh two, two or three reps from failure is probably fine. But no one's going to say like, oh man, to maximize growth, got to stay 10 reps away. Like at that point, it's not, it's not its own model anymore. It's just shit that everyone already believes, you know? Right. 
Um, and so like the more specific version of the effective reps idea that like reps get more effective as you get closer to failure. And it's really just those last five that count. We don't have enough granular, we don't have granular enough evidence to confidently say that. And we have evidence contradicting it. So I, I have issues with specific models that are more specific than we can can justifiably derive. So here's my question. I spend more time keeping an eye on the nutrition and body comp related chatter, Mm -hmm. not as much on the training side. My outside observation was some period of time ago, everybody was obsessed with volume load, like their tonnage Mm -hmm. for their training. And then people started bringing up these hypothetical questions of like, well, what if I did that tonnage, but arranged it in a completely ludicrous way Mm -hmm. such that nothing was ever acutely challenging? Yeah. Yeah. Did this just kind of evolve to fill that gap? Like to help explain like, well, no, you got to do something that's kind of tough. Maybe. So not to, not to toot my own horn too much, but I kind of think that Stronger by Science started changing that conversation back in 2013, 2014. Um, We published a guest article from Nathan Jones that like was the first thing I saw that got pretty popular and it it went a little bit viral, um, arguing that, hey, volume load is dumb. Like probably as long as sets are pretty close to failure, you can count hard sets and that's going to predict hypertrophy reasonably well. So 2013, 2014, he he did a good job summarizing the evidence that was there, but there weren't that many studies um, kind of t- to support or refute that idea back then. Uh, and then a couple years later, like either 2015, 2016, thereabouts, uh, there was an explosion of research in that area, especially like high load versus low load stuff. Um, and so I, I basically wrote like uh, an expanded version of Nathan's article incorporating mo- the research that had come out in the past couple of years, I think called the hypertrophy, like the quote unquote hypertrophy range factor fiction question mark. Um, and it incorporated like a lot more of the recent research. And it basically made the same point that volume load is dumb and as long as sets are pretty close to failure, you can count hard sets. And so I, I think that's when the conversation started shifting. Like that's when I started that's when I started seeing people talk about volume load and then like a dozen people jump down their throat and say, volume load's dumb, it's hard sets. Um so I, I think that I think that effective reps is kind of a a more granular version of hard sets. Like it's trying to quantify what hard is and kind of make the claim that going to failure does matter, is going to get you more growth per set than staying like two reps shy of failure. So I think it's just a more granular idea that is similar to the hard sets concept, but is more granular in a way that's not fully justified. Yeah. I mean, I, I shared your article, this most recent one on social media and someone kind of commented like, why not just do hard sets? Which I mean, like, fair enough, hard sets there. It's, it's a logical, I mean, it's a, a solid way to operationalize things, 
But I think this most recent article makes you consider the idea of if you do hard sets, how hard should a set be? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like exactly how literally do we take this idea of effective reps and say, well, if you stop two shy of failure, that's objectively worse than stopping one shy of failure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so my response is like, yeah, you can do hard sets and that's still fine, but, but how hard? Mm -hmm. And I think using hard sets as a framework and then diving into this article of talking about, okay, so how hard are we talking? Mm -hmm. I think you walk away from, from the article with a better understanding of from a practical perspective how nitpicky do we have to get about that proximity to failure when mm-hmm. programming? Yes. Yeah, so, so I th- the the conclusion I basically came to is I think like <laughs> as is often the case, the stuff that like big jacked people were saying twenty years ago is probably right. Um, so like compound lifts, two to three reps from failure, probably fine. Like you probably don't need to push every set of compound exercise to failure to maximize growth on a per set basis. Um, but, but you very well may need to go to failure for single joint stuff. So like, you know, stay two or three reps from failure when you squat, then hop over to the knee extension and, you know, fucking give, give it everything you got, you know? And I think one, I think that's what the experimental evidence supports like the stuff on single joint training, going to failure does seem like a pretty big deal. Stuff on multi-joint stuff, you know, two, two or three reps further from failure doesn't really seem to to have much of an effect on hypertrophy. So probably don't need to take that. It's close to failure, which again, like that's that's what people have been saying for a long time. And I think it's probably mostly right. But yeah, so just to shift gears slightly um i think one of the i think one of the um like interpretations that came out of this article that i don't fully agree with uh and and something that i've seen like levied at me before is that i'm like anti-training to failure um because i mean the the basic difference between the idea i like which is hard sets and the idea of effective reps is basically like, you know, I, I say, yeah, I probably need to push everything to at least like two to three reps shy of failure. That's probably advisable, at least for hypertrophy, maybe maybe not for strength in some contexts. Um, but I mean, the main difference is just really, oh, those last two or three reps from to failure, like are those effective or not? So I think some people get the idea that I am anti-training to failure and I'm not like, I, I think it's quite useful in some contexts. And so I think the first thing training to failure gives you is I think it's good for idiot proofing your program against laziness. And so one of the things I see with some people, and we've talked about this before, is that when some folks use like RPE or reps in reserve based training, they're marking shit down as an RPE eight. That's just not like, you look at it, they still have like six reps in the tank. They never do anything remotely hard in their training. Yeah. And one of the things that's striking when you start reading research is you see a lot of longitudinal training studies that recruit folks who have an average of three, like three, four, five years of training experience. They put them on a really basic program for like 10 weeks and then they 
you know, like muscle cross-sectional area increases 10% and they get like 20% stronger on their main lifts. And if you're a strength coach and you've been working with someone for five years and they started with you when they were untrained, you're not getting their muscles 10% bigger and putting 20% on their lifts in 10 weeks. Like it just doesn't happen. But these programs are really basic, but in the vast majority of research, all sets are taken to failure. And there's also research looking at (laughs) how lazy most people are in most of their training. Um, So Eric Helms, a distinctly different Eric than the one on this podcast. I've met him, but I'm not him. Correct. Yeah. Just to be clear. Uh, He reviewed a study from Mass like maybe a year and a half ago looking it it was a super straightforward study they basically like plucked people out of the campus gym at some college and asked them if you were bench pressing and you were doing sets of 10 what weight would you work with and so one like those people probably exaggerated a little bit just because if you ask someone how much you bench most people round up not down you know um but so they asked them how much would you do for sets of 10 they told them a number i think it was probably an overestimate whatever um and then they brought them in the next day or like a couple days later or whatever and just put them on a bench like loaded them or warmed them up and then threw the weight they did for sets of 10 on the bar and just had them do a set to failure and i i forget the exact numbers from that study but I want to say like 40% of the folks did 16 or more reps, which I mean, oh, man. Y- you know, maybe they don't do bench press first in their workout and like they do some pre-fatigue stuff or like they do 20 sets of bench. And so they need to start with a conservative number for 10. Like th- those are possibilities, but no, I don't think that applies to most of them. Most people, you start a workout. If you're going to bench in the workout, bench is your first exercise. Yeah. Probably going to do three or four sets. So like... Dude, a a hefty chunk of the people in that study were just training lazy. Like they never did anything that I would call a hard set or that probably anyone except them would call a hard set. But like they thought that that was an appropriate way to train bench press, you know. Um, So one of the things you see in the research is you take these people who claim to have prior training experience Make them start pushing every set to failure, and then magically, within about three months, they get a lot bigger and a lot stronger. So I don't think training to failure is bad, but I think that it does idiot-proof your program against laziness. If you go until you can't do a rep, no one's going to say that that was not a hard set. So one, everyone would agree, you need to train pretty hard to maximize growth if you don't have much experience training to failure or any experience training to failure. That's a good way to make sure your program is hard. So that's the first thing I would say. You look like you're about to say something. I was going to say, I have advice that people shouldn't take, but it actually is useful. (laughs) It's just dangerous. So don't do it. But so (laughs) (laughs) when I bench in the gym, I, I never get a spotter. But a lot of times people will come up and ask if they can spot me. I'd be like, do you mind if I just spot you? Because I, I feel like you're going to die. <laughs> and so I feel like that's a really good litmus test for like exactly how much are you shortchanging your RPEs. If people start offering to spot you and just be like, please, just let me 
just let me keep an eye on you. It probably means you're pushing your RPEs pretty hard that you're you're at least getting up there. Yeah. Um and then what you can do if you want if you need a, a witty response and you want to say no, you just say if I don't get the rep, I don't want to live to know about it. <laughs> and then people think you're really tough. Nice. Um and, and so the other thing that I would say pretty strongly in favor of training to failure is I think that if you do want to do sub-maximal training and use RPEs or reps in reserve to to manage that, I think that there's value in spending some time when you do a lot of training to failure just so when your program says, you know, RP8, two reps in reserve, you know what that fucking feels like. And I, I think that, um, like, if you've never gone to failure, I just don't know that I would feel confident that you accurately know when you're two reps from failure. Because I think that, I think that's a lot harder than a lot of people realize it is. Um, like, like I know, so for example, like I have a fair amount of experience doing like Shaco style training. That, that's just feeding you triples at 80% and like doubles at 85% until the, until the cows come home. And like a triple at 80% is not easy. Like you still have plenty of reps in reserve. Like for most people, it's probably at least three reps in reserve. For me, when I'm fresh, it's probably five or six. Um, but like a triple at 80%, if you have a pretty high squat, it's not an easy set. Uh, you know, do four, five, six of those. Like you feel like you got a pretty good workout in. Um, and when I get in Chico mode, uh, those, you know, by the time I get like two or three sets in, I'm like, fuck, like this is hard. And I think part of it is kind of the mental grind, but at any point I could just say, well, I'm doing a set to failure now and get like eight or nine reps, you know? So I think that if you and like, I can step back and know that and know that like, no, I can definitely do this next set. Like I feel the deep Shiko ache in my thighs, but I know I can do this next set. It's not actually that hard. I just don't want to do it. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, if you don't have, if you don't have much experience training to failure, like, you know, it's not that you're doing nothing. If you're doing sets of 10 with your 16 rep max, it's just, probably not as hard as you think it is. And you may think you only have like two or three reps you could do, but you can actually do way more. So so I think that there's value in in spending some time going to failure just so you can like accurately use submaximal training down down the line. Um and then the the biggest thing people will say against training to failure is that it's going to like dramatically increase your injury risk and i'm actually not so sure about that either so uh, i i know that the the hip thing to say these days is that there's no correlation between technique and injury rates whatsoever i think that i think that that idea is maybe more true than some people believe but i don't think it's completely true like i i think if you go to failure like to true failure until you actually miss uh for like squats and deadlifts week in and week out that will probably elevate your injury risk um some people are probably going to get mad at me because that's not a hard line enough statement some people are probably going to get mad at me 
because I said that there's any relationship whatsoever between technique and injury risk, but I just don't think your form breaking down going to failure on squats and deadlifts is a great idea. Fucking fight me. Anyways, so I do think that like in that context, yeah, yeah, training to failure may increase your injury risk. Form breakdown, you're squatting and deadlifting like 500 pounds with a bunch of spinal flexion. Yeah, it's not good. But I also think that that doesn't apply to like pretty much any other lift. <laughs> so, I mean, take a, take bench press, for example. If you have a spotter, and so you, you don't have to worry about like crushing your sternum or rib cage or whatever, what's actually going to go that bad if you push a set to failure? Like, what what like joint or tissue is going to be exposed to so much like extreme elevation and stress that bad stuff is going to happen or like fucking pull downs what's going to what's going to go wrong if you take a set of pull downs to failure i and i think we can kind of get an idea of of the of the fact that going to failure doesn't dramatically change injury risk just by looking at the injury rates um, comparing strength sports and bodybuilding. So there's, I think, like two or three studies looking at at injury rates in bodybuilding and like two, two, three, four studies for powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman, like for, for each sport. And you tend to see, you tend to see injury rates for um, bodybuilding that's like maybe half an injury to one and a half injuries per thousand hours of training. And for the strength sports, it's anywhere between like two and five. And so like injury rates do pretty reliably seem to be lower in bodybuilders. And obviously this isn't true for all individuals at all time, but I, I don't think anyone's going to give me much pushback when I claim that bodybuilders go to failure for a lot of exercises a lot more frequently than strength athletes do. And so I, I don't think the actual kind of like real world type evidence, like actually looking at injury rates suggests that training to failure under most contexts is really that bad for injury risk. So, so I do think, I do think training to failure is fine under most contexts. I think it helps idiot proof your program against not training hard. Uh, I think it's useful down the line if you want to do RPE and RIR based stuff. Um, I don't think it's ideal for strength development. I think that, you know, being able to get in high quality sets, be, being able to do more of them by not pushing close to failure is probably going to be clutch. I think your training frequency and the amount of times you can practice a, a motor pattern in a week is going to be higher if you don't train to failure, just because it's not going to take you quite as long to recover from that training session. Like I, I, I do think there there are a lot of contexts where it makes more sense and you will probably get better results not training to failure, but I'm definitely not anti-training to failure. All right. So if you want to take a deeper dive into some of the evidence we've talked about, if you want to get uh, a deeper grasp on this entire concept of effective reps and what evidence supports it, what evidence maybe doesn't support it, um, again, that article is at strongerbyscience.com slash effective reps. Yeah, and just one very final thing I want to I want to note about the idea of effective reps and uh, Chris Beardsley's version of it in particular. This this was in my outline, and I forgot to say it on the front end. Um, one thing I want to make clear is that my article is critiquing 
the version of his ideas that has gotten really popular online, which is is a bit of a simplification of what it seems he actually believes about the topic itself. Um, so I want to make it clear that that I really like Chris. I um, agree with most of the things he has to say. And his actual ideas about hypertrophy are are probably a bit more nuanced than what is getting shared on the internet constantly. Um, so, so I want to I want to make it clear that I'm critiquing kind of like the internet hive mind version of Chris's model and not everything he has ever said about the subject. Okay, so um, ooh, to play us out now. To play us out, very, very upsetting news came down the line. On a previous episode, we mentioned that Ohio State, uh, it's the football team uh, that Greg and I root for. There's also a university associated with the football team. The university, um, they, they applied to trademark the word the, and at the time we were talking about it, it was still up in the air. Um, well, it, it was the, correct? The, I'm sorry. It, yeah. It's not the Ohio State University. Yes, the word is the. And so they just got word back. The initial application has been refused uh, by the U.S., the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So some career politician bureaucrat, um, probably with a political axe to grind, probably part of the deep state swamp people, um, decided that they wanted to, to kick this application back and deny it. But... Hope is not lost. Ohio State says that they have several legal av- avenues that they can pursue. They're still on the case. They are going to make this happen. Okay, so um, it was a little setback. I wanted to inform people who were maybe waiting to hear an update. Yes, we had a small uh, setback in the courts there, or I guess at the U.S. Patent Office. But Just to be clear, a, a setback in the courts, right? Correct, yeah, a setback in the courts. Um but the good news is we are still, when I say we, I mean the university, is still working hard to make that happen. And the other good news is Ohio State is 2-0 and and looking great. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. After the music, we've got an interview with Lauren Colenzo-Semple. We hope you enjoy it. So, Lauren, you recently completed your master's degree with Bill Campbell over at uh, University of South Florida, and now you're doing your PhD at McMaster, correct, with Stu Phillips? That's right. So uh, while I was working as a trainer, I sort of became aware of this uh, area of research and connected with Brad Schoenfeld, volunteered in his lab for a bit, and he recommended Bill Campbell's program. So I was there for two years, and I've been in... Hamilton for about a week and a half. Very cool. How are you liking it so far? It is an adjustment, but we're making progress day by day. Very good. So yeah, I mean, what's really cool is if you kind of look back over the last few years, you've got quite a, quite a coaching tree that you come from in terms of your academic training. So you you interned with Brad Schoenfeld a little bit. You did a master's with Bill Campbell. You did an internship with Andy Galpin over in California. While you were there, you uh, made a pilgrimage to the Glute Lab. 
mm-hmm. uh, under the tutelage of uh, Brett Contreras for like a weekend. And then now you're with Stu Phillips in Canada. So that that's a extensive list of, of the really the heavy hitters in the evidence-based fitness side of things. So do you have a PhD topic yet? I don't. Okay. Well, it's only been a week, so I guess that's fair. Um, so I've been focusing on things like getting an ID and getting my furniture, yeah, health insurance, you know, just... It's kind of like the penalty that you pay when you abandon your country is you have to go through some of the uh, unpleasant processes of, of reestablishing that stuff. Now, one of the things I want to talk to you about today is the study that you recently completed for your master's thesis. So the title... I believe was high and moderate volumes facilitate similar muscular adaptations in resistance trained women. And full disclosure, I collaborated on this project a little bit. Uh, frankly, I, I think I did kind of most of the work, but I'm still going to ask you questions to kind of lead the, the conversation along. So do you mind telling us kind of why this project, like what inspired you to set out to look into this question? So I actually went to uh, the University of South Florida with the intention of doing this study. So if you can sort of put that in in perspective, that was mid-2017 and volume was a very hot topic. I guess it still is. Um, But at that point, there was really a lack of work in women and particularly in trained women. So I kind of wanted to fill that void in comparing a, you know, what we deemed a moderate volume to a sort of unreasonably high volume. And so how did you go about kind of setting those volumes, like determining what was a moderate and what was a high volume? First, I decided to just have the volume discrepancy be in the lower body. Um, So we would just measure strength and muscle thickness in lower body sites. Uh, So it was, although a full body program, very lower body focused, Um, just because I found that in, in some other studies, it looked like they were doing these full body workouts, but a lot of the exercises were not necessarily Um, hitting the muscle groups that they were testing in any way. So I I wanted it to be um, sort of as relevant to the test as possible. In terms of the volume, um, in terms of the number of sets that we established as as moderate and high, um, that was basically looking at the, the moderate as what was then sort of the perceived upper limit where by which there wasn't enough evidence to determine whether you would continue to grow. Um, at, at the time, Brad had just published a meta-analysis looking at, you know, three sets is better than one, five sets is better than three, 10 sets is better than five. But after that, we're not sure what happens. So the moderate volume group was performing 12 sets for the lower body three times per week. And the higher, the high volume group was performing what ended up being 81 sets uh, total. So 27 sets three times per week. So that's really high volume. How did the, how did the participants react to that kind of volume? So it is high, but if you think about the other studies that, that describe this as sets per muscle group per week, um, then it wouldn't be as crazy. So it, this was a mix of 
compound exercises. They were doing squats, RDLs, hip thrusts, and leg extensions, leg curls, um, cable abduction. So it, you know, it was a lot of volume, but I'll just kind of put that in context. In terms of how they handled it, it was a really wide spectrum of response. Um, I'd say the moderate volume group were, was completely fine. They were in and out in 40 minutes. Um, some of them complained that it wasn't enough work. And then with the high volume, there was there were people who seemed totally unaffected by it, easily to recover, happy to show up every week, three days per week. And then there were people who were complaining, dying, etc. Right. So, so just to uh, get the, uh, get our heads around the methods here. So we're talking there are thirty seven resistance trained women, right? That's right. Uh, about twenty three years old. And w- what was the the definition for resistance trained there? They had to have been resistance training for regularly for the past two years and also have been squatting regularly for the past year. Okay, cool. And so you're training them in the lab three days a week, right? That's right. So three non-consecutive days a week for eight weeks. Um, the the protocol, the exercise program was the same for each session. It was just that difference in number of sets. And they were not training to failure. We cut off each set uh, two reps from failure. Cool. And so the three days a week, were those, all three of those were lower body? It was technically full body, but it was vastly lower, uh, lower body exercises uh, as the majority of the program. And then at the end of the workout, they would do two sets of an upper body push and two sets of an upper body pull. So, so going into this project, you know, there's been several studies over the last few years of comparing different volume levels, specifically in male subjects. And I think by and large, kind of the prevailing theory is that volume seems to really dictate a lot when it comes to strength and hypertrophy gains. Um, But then theoretically, there's got to be some kind of upper limit where the diminishing returns just get to the point where why bother doing more, you know? So it sounds like you were kind of trying to do similar work in women and see like, okay, if we do like a pretty reasonable, reasonable volume or a super high one, you know, does the high volume stuff really pay off? Is that basically what you're getting at here? That's right. And that was also the reason for having a a fairly big difference. Uh, So you'll, the high volume group was doing more than twice the volume on a kind of weekly set basis than the moderate volume group. So we were really trying to push that and to see, is there, does it plateau? Do you regress? Um, and try to kind of hit on that point if it exists. What, what, uh, what are the kind of outcomes that you're looking at? We measured muscle thickness using ultrasound, uh, at, in, in the, the front and the back of the thigh and also the side. So you can think, you know, rectus femoris, vastus lateralis um, in, the, in the quad and then hamstrings and glutes. Okay, cool. And so, I mean, going into the study, what were you expecting to, to find with this big discrepancy in volume? Like what was the, the hypothesis going into it? I had a feeling that strength would not be different 
and I was right. Um, it was exactly the same in both groups. Uh, and the, and the strength measure was a six RM squat. Okay. I did think the high volume group would grow more. And did that pan out? It did not. Um, <laughs> we had one statistically significant finding in the, the lateral thigh, uh, in favor of the high volume group, but given the lack of, of difference in all the other muscle thickness site measures, I'm not putting in too much stock in that, frankly. But just to sort of look at the, these uh, these types of studies as a whole, it's really hard to um, to compare them because, for example, you know, my subjects grew about one to five percent over eight weeks. And you look at some other studies and there's way more growth. Um, in similar time frames, um, so it, it's tough to to see. Well, what's the norm, <laughs> or is it just how we're measuring it? Do you do you think that was just because your subjects were more highly trained than than most of the prior cohorts in the research? I'm I'm sure that that had something to do with it, but even looking at some of the more recent work, um, the Schoenfeld paper that came out last year, the Barbalho, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, that was all. And they were those were both entrained subjects, and the the growth in, in both of those studies was just way 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 more than what I witnessed. So if not the training status, I mean, what do you attribute that to? That's, it's sort of a mystery to me, honestly, <laughs> um, but in, in trying to, in trying to compare this, I'm just um, seeing, yeah, a, a lot of, it, it, I think it's tough to kind of reconcile the, the literature as a whole at this point. Um, and I think part of that is some of the papers don't even report actual millimeter thickness they're reporting just p-values or effect sizes. Um, and the, the more recent work has started sharing, oh, you know, this was the pre, the post, the change. Um, but the, the, the change over time in, in my study was very small. And that, honestly, I think that makes sense to me as a trained person um, to, to gr- let's say, to add... 10% to your quad in eight weeks seems a little bit far-fetched. Um. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I see that all the time. And that's always the first thought that comes to mind. It's like, look, man, like I, I've trained a lot of people and I don't, I don't see that many people who've been training hard for two or three years, like p- increasing any measure of muscle size 10% in six to eight weeks. Like you just don't see that. Like you do have individuals occasionally who have results like that, but like group results. eh. So it it makes me think that um, occasionally the, the criteria are kind of lax. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if they say we need someone to be training for two years, it's like, um, you know, maybe if someone has kind of like gone to the gym on and off for two years, they kind of slip into the sample versus people who've like actually been training for two years, you know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And as you both know, recruitment for these kinds of studies is 
a challenge. And so uh, although you'd love for everybody to be equally trained, that's just never going to happen. I feel like that's something that you is kind of lost on people that have never had to work through the logistics of doing this kind of study. But it's like the ideal scenario is you're going to find somebody that's super into lifting and has been training like crazy for hopefully years <laughs> and is willing to hand over all of their training decisions to you for an in, you know for a long period of time and they know it's not even a personalized program it's just like well you're either going to get a or b you know and, like and and they know yeah. it's n- not just that it's not personalized but that it's not necessarily going to be like a, a one size fits all program that's attempting to be quote unquote optimal like you're going into it with a hypothesis like you got a 50/50 <laughs> chance that you're getting the program that even the researcher doesn't think is great you know yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like like Greg said, I think, um, you know, what did you say was the generally like the mean percentage growth you were seeing in your ultrasound measurements? It was about one to five percent. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was a six week or eight week study. Eight weeks. Yeah. If, if you promise me three percent over the next eight weeks, like I'll take that immediately. So like, I, I think. <laughs> and just for context, you know, where we're so those those actual numbers are things like um, a millimeter, two millimeters, uh, sometimes a little bit more than that. But, you know, so think the thickness of two pennies, um, that's not visible growth. Yeah. So after doing the study, being the person that ran it, I'm surprised you didn't call me out when I slipped in that comment that I did all the work because I basically did none of the work, but I I guess... You're just going to let that slide. Um, After going through all this and being there for all the training (laughs) sessions, seeing how people respond to the training, like what's your main takeaway in terms of like practical conclusions? When you look back at this, how can somebody actually use the results to inform their training? Well, first and foremost, you know, take all of these results with a grain of salt because Eric did the statistics and I obviously need to redo them. Uh, just like oh, oh, <laughs> shit. The, the statistics are fine. Mm-hmm. We, we've got we've got a world star moment about to go down here. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of practical takeaways, I mean, one of the things that bothers me when people look at studies like this is they're looking for the paper to tell them what to do, to tell you how to train. And that's this really silly way to use this kind of um use these findings because the one of the most interesting things about this kind of a study is you see all right this happened on average it's not that interesting but then you look at the individual response and it's really interesting because you're getting you're seeing hey this program was great for somebody and terrible for someone else and you see that not only with with the muscle growth but definitely with strength as well um you're you have somebody who got five pounds weaker and somebody who put 80 pounds on their squat. And part of that, yes, is, is I think training status going in, but there's clearly also um, this question of volume and other variables. It's not one size fits all. So I think as an individual, these papers give you maybe a general place to start or as a coach, right? But then if you're really looking to, um, optimize your own programming, then it's 
experimentation to really find what works for you. You're not getting that from a paper. I, I, I do have one question. So did you kind of like... I don't know, informally jot down or like take notes of which individuals on the high volume program were really struggling versus which ones seem to be more or less doing fine. Because I I would be interested in, in whether there would be a difference between those folks. Like my, my, my kind of mental model here is that more volume is better as long as you can recover from it and it's not just beating you to shit. So like, I would kind of think that the, the more interesting variable isn't necessarily volume itself, but kind of like how people are responding to the volume. So like, I would think the people who were beat to hell from the high volume would probably not do better than the moderate volume group or perhaps even do worse and then the mm-hmm. people who were on the high volume who were handling it quite well would would probably do better than the moderate volume group. Like th- that's that would be kind of my rough hypothesis. So I'm just wondering if you like jotted that down anywhere for kind of like an informal analysis. Sure. I mean, it, it's hard because there's so much that goes into it that we have no control over. Um, oh, for sure. Lifestyle, stress, sleep, all that. Um, you know, we don't have the resources to, to closely monitor all of the variables that are going to go into recovery. Um, but I, I would say um, a lot of it was outside stress. So it seemed, um, you know, the, the, the people who just had more going on in their lives, this is, you know, not shocking, but the, the, the students who were students and had jobs, um, and were maybe in a difficult major, they tended to be having a harder time with the, the high volume. Um, whereas some of the other students who maybe didn't have as much going on in life were able to handle it better but that's a really loose statement <laughs> and I'm probably not that helpful no I got you that that makes sense and and so like if if you did kind of find what I'm hypothesizing here it would be like kind of a two-way interaction like it w- mm-hmm. was it necessarily the greater volume that's doing it or is it just they were the ones that had lifestyles more conducive to getting good results so ultimately, it may not mean anything. <laughs> I should mention we we also assessed uh, salivary cortisol at baseline and post eight weeks, um, and I have not yet looked at the cortisol levels in comparison to maybe the progress that they made on each program. Mostly because mm-hmm. that session didn't get me the results until late last night. Um, you you that's insane you you texted me at like five and said Mm -hmm. like here's some cortisol data how do they look Mm -hmm. i i did them in like immediately dropped everything except that i emailed them to you two weeks ago yeah but i wasn't i didn't care at that time (laughs) 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 if you if if you had emailed them to me and texted me and said i need these now then i i would have done them then it, it's interesting that, you know, that I'm coming on your podcast today. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I have time to prioritize my, my cortisol. Listen, I, the stats are fantastic. These are incredible stats. you never seen stats like these. So I think you should be happy um, that you got them so quickly. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the turnaround time was like three hours. 
moving on. So, <laughs> um, what what was interesting though, just at first glance, is the the range of cortisol levels. So, um, it's my understanding that maybe an average uh, in kind of young people it would be about twenty, and they ranged from five to thirty five in our subjects, which was pretty astounding. Yeah, and cortisol is just such a tricky hormone. I mean, when we've we've used it in previous studies I've been involved with with uh, physique athletes mm-hmm. uh, throughout prep and recovery, and there are just so many things that influence it. I mean, you you can get some pretty wild numbers with cortisol just from. I mean, the way you view it as a researcher is you're simply looking at physiological stressors, but like you can't control the fact that somebody had a breakup three days ago and they've got a final exam in two days. And yeah, cortisol numbers can just get pretty wild pretty quick, depending on these other stressors that in in many cases are extraneous to anything you can control. Or, you know? or just that it's someone's first time ever being in a research lab and they're nervous. Sure. Yeah, definitely. That, that's not to be overlooked. And um, so the simple fact that we're just measuring it once throughout the day is for sure a limitation. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I think when people look at the literature comparing all these different volumes, there's been a lot of studies over the last few years uh, that kind of fit that paradigm. Generally speaking, I mean, wh- what's your take on when you have, so- I mean, you have somebody that maybe you're going to coach, and they come to you and say, all right, let's start me with a program. What's your view on where to set that volume uh, getting started? I would err on the side of lower um, unless they're already doing more. <laughs> um, but I think we all make the mistake of doing way too much way too early on. And it's just another opportunity to get injured. Um, it's probably not helping you progress any faster. You know, if, if I can grow doing five sets a week, then I should do that for as long as it's working and then make the adjustment instead of unnecessarily doing 35 sets a week. Yeah. And so do, do you think that this relationship with volume and growth and strength adaptations, do you suspect that this is because you, you know you set out to do this study in females who tend to be underrepresented in this in this field uh, in terms of you know research participants. Um, do you suspect that those guidelines differ between men and women? I I think that we we don't know that yet. Um, I know there's a, a fair amount of speculation on um, uh, women can handle more volume and women don't need to rest as long. And uh, I don't know that, uh, that all that is very conclusive. Um, and I'd say that sure on the, on the individual level, there seems to be a, a big, big range of what, what's going to work for you. Um, but I, I, we, I don't think there's enough studies comparing trained men and trained women on the same protocol. And so it's kind of hard to compare apples and oranges with, you know, one study with trained men and one study with trained women. No, I I agree. One of the really striking things when you look at the literature is like, 
how many research questions have a ton of studies in men and like no studies in women or like maybe one study. So like, for example, the um, low load, very high rep training versus more like moderate load, like sets of eight to 12 type stuff uh, until there were there were two more studies published in women like two or three months ago. But until mm-hmm. then, like there were there were like 14 studies in men and there was one study in women from back in like 2009. So yeah. like how how can you like there was there was a body of literature in men that you could draw conclusions from. And then like one study in women that you had to look at and be like, well, hope they did that one right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, like that's definitely a good point. A, a lot of what we know uh we just kind of think slash hope that what we've learned about in men carries over to women as well. And in a, in a lot of cases it does, but there's just not as much research on women to be able to make that comparison like you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, a, a paper we published recently out of Andy's lab, we were looking at uh, the fiber type in these elite athletes, men and women. And, there's this sort of prevailing thought that women possess more type two, uh, type one fibers. And we didn't find that um, in these kind of elite athletes. So I think there's, and not to say, oh, well, everyone else is wrong, but um, with fiber type analysis, there's a lot of nuance based on the particular technique that you use. um, And, so I think that some of that and and probably some other kind of assumptions of sex difference are will continue to evolve as we do more research and as we also kind of refine our techniques for analysis. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because this summer you went out and, and interned in Andy's lab. And I know looking at that paper, you make a big distinction between two different ways to do this fiber typing analysis. So Mm -hmm. there's the homogenate composition and then the the single fiber uh, kind of method for analysis. Do you mind explaining that to me as if I were an idiot? (laughs) Sure. So hypothetically, this was a really totally hypothetically. Um, My experience in Andy's lab was really valuable because I think even if you're somebody who reads a lot of papers where they're reporting fiber type distribution, it's tough to truly understand, well, do we care that one of this was homogenate and one of this was single fiber? And, or, and can we compare those, those papers that, you know, can we group all of this fiber type findings together? And, and the answer is probably not. Um, so with the homogenate, you're basically taking the sample and grinding it up. And so you have multiple different fibers and subsequently fiber types within that particular sample. So then we're looking at t- separating that mixture of proteins based on molecular weight. Um, and the homogenate quantifies sort of the, the percent area that is occupied by your type 1, type 2A, and type 2X. It does not distinguish between the hybrid fiber types. So if you think of of this actually being on a kind of spectrum of 
myosin heavy chain content, then you're going from the type one, which is slow to the type two X or super fast. But along the way, you also have these hybrids. So you have a type type one slash type two A and a type two A slash type two X. And the homogenate can't identify the those hybrids. And so it tends to overestimate the type one and the type two X. Yeah, I think I think that's an awesome point. Um, just to interject, I don't think a lot of people are aware of the continuity in muscle mm-hmm. fiber typing. You know what I mean? I, I think a lot of people think there are these three very neat bins of one, two A, and two X. And the whole concept that we're really looking at more of a continuum than three completely distinct things, I think, is lost on a lot of people. Well, that's that's because all of the like exercise physiology textbooks that you learn in undergrad are based on research from like the fucking 70s, man. Um, (laughs) Like, like, I, I don't think that's a blind spot for people who aren't trying to educate themselves. I think that's people just assuming that textbooks are much more up to date than they are. Like, I know that's what I thought until, like, I said something, and then Andy Galpin, like, saw what I posted, and probably could have torn me a new one, but was way more (laughs) polite than I probably deserved. He was like, check out my 55-minute physiology videos on this topic. And I did, and it, it just blew my mind, because, like, I had been told for the past, like, five years that, like, hey, this is how it is, and that's how... Like all of the basic textbooks lay it out. And that's, you know, an understanding that's outdated by a solid 30 years. I think there's also this, uh, I I think it's represented as if, oh, this fiber is type one, period, end of story. But there's no explanation of what does it actually mean to be type one? And if it's type one today, does that mean it's type one forever? And that's another sort of interesting body of work right now, just showing the plasticity of the fiber type, you know, that especially with training um, and also with an unhealthy lifestyle, you can go in either direction. Right. Um, But you're you're getting these shifts of fiber type. So somebody who does a lot of endurance training, for example, uh, in their lifetime will, when biopsied, have many more type ones, whereas uh, these elite kind of strength and power out, uh, athletes have a ton of the two A's. Yeah. Now I, I, I often hear people saying that they're like, Oh, I want to train so I can get more two X, you know, cause two X is the biggest and the mm-hmm. most explosive. I, I, is there any, uh, any reason that somebody should set out to do that? No. So, I mean, in fact, that actually goes back to comparing the homogenate to the single fiber, um, because the homogenate only quantifies one, two A and two X, then it is sort of inappropriately identifying what is in fact a two A, two X hybrid as a pure two X. Um, so when we analyzed the, the fiber type distribution in these world-class Olympic weightlifters, um, there, there were no type 2x in any of the athletes when we did the single fiber analysis yeah i mean i I used to always tell people if you want to get more 2x fibers just stop moving entirely or go to space because i mean that's really the the kind of the fiber type at least from what i've been taught that you get essentially from extensive detraining like 
when you extensively detrain, we tend to see more of those 2x. But in someone who's otherwise mobile and especially doing any kind of training, they, they, they really don't seem to be very prevalent, do they? Yeah, so really, um, and again, now with being able to identify these hybrids, you're seeing the, the vast majority of these 2A2X hybrid fibers in sedentary people, in diseased populations, um, in overweight people, um, whereas you're going to get more of the, the, two, the pure 2A in somebody who is an athlete you know, particularly a strength of power athlete, but yeah. really though, the, with the development of, of this sort of ability to identify those hybrids, we don't see two X anymore. Um, but if even in the sedentary people, that's right. You're seeing a lot wow. of the, the, the hybrids, but going back to the homogenate again there is no ability to to see that and so then it's going to be classified as 2x okay so you mentioned with the the homogenate basically we go in we take a muscle biopsy we grind it up and then we kind of sort it out from there so how does the single fiber technique uh how does it differ from that so with the single fiber, you're actually separating out with tweezers under a microscope each individual fiber. It's like teeny tiny strands of hair. Um, okay. It's very time consuming work. <laughs> but basically <laughs> you're taking it with each fiber that you were able to tease out, then you put that in a test tube and you are only looking at the... Um, at the, the fiber type itself of that single fiber. So essentially when it's reported in a paper as 30% or 50% or whatever it is, then that's expressing the frequency of that particular fiber type in a given sample. So let's say I uh, separate out a hundred fibers, analyze all of them, how many of those were type one, then we're saying, okay, this, this occurs this often, but the, sort of downside of, of that analysis is that you're not able to identify the, the area that it's taking up. We're only able to say, oh, this is this is type one, type one, two A, et cetera. Whereas the homogenate it, it's, it's all about quantifying area. Okay, so I, I have a quick question. How so I, I get that the single fiber analysis is much better if you want to know kind of granularly what each of your fibers actually looks like. But in terms of in in terms of like I guess being able to guess or predict something about performance, um I I wonder does it actually matter? And I, I don't say like I wonder as a I'm leading you to an answer. I say I wonder as in like I actually wonder because I don't know too much about this. So basically like let's say someone has 50% type two fibers and looking at the homogen, the homogenate, it's, you know, um, like 40%, uh, type two, a myosin heavy chains and 10% type two X versus when you do the single fiber analysis, you see, it's like, um, you know, 30% pure type two, a and 20% two, a two X hybrids. So like both kind of work out to the same thing, but like, do, does one or the other tell you 
anything different about what sort of performance you could expect from that athlete? Or, or is it just that the single fiber kind of gives you more granular information if you want to do uh, like research on like fiber type shifts or something like that? Yes. And I think especially just um, to bring up those hybrids again, when, for example, if you're a sedentary person with a ton of those 2A2X hybrids, and then you start training, then those will shift to pure 2A. And so that has some kind of implications for overall health, potentially. Um, In terms of performance, we, in our group of, like I said, these were elite kind of best weightlifters that there are. They had a ton of 2As, um, as you would expect for strength and power athletes. But when you compared uh, on the kind of individual level, their particular fiber type distribution to performance, it was not a predictor at all. I, I gotcha. So basically for for kind of like health implications, the just percentage of hybrid fibers is kind of an indicator that, okay, maybe this person doesn't exercise much. And if someone has very few of them, they probably exercise more. But but beyond that, it's not that that huge of a deal. Like, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think it also, it depends on the sport. Um, okay. So for, it, it, it might be, like the, the having more type 2As might be, be more beneficial if you are doing something like Olympic weightlifting, where you have to move a lot of weight very quickly. So the idea that it's not necessarily about how strong you are, but more about, or, you know, say more speed than force production necessarily, um, that, that might help. Um, But the idea that, oh, you currently have 60% 2A, should you be striving to get 65%? Like, <laughs> you, you will have more 2A, period, just from doing resistance training. And so I don't think it's a particularly good measure of performance, especially when you're comparing one trained person to the other. And it, it's worth pointing out in this sample, you had six world-class female weightlifters and then in terms of like national caliber, it looks like nine females and six males. So you know, we're basically, we're, we're looking at how fiber type related to performance, but in a sample that was already uh, tr- tremendously well-trained and competitive, right? That's right. And so you're, it, it, it's basically just saying, okay, well, once we get to this, we were trying to see what what makes you world-class, right? Instead of the national, is there something that we can see here that would, is it about the fiber type? Um, or is it just that your training history is probably shifting the fibers in one direction or the other? And so it, it seems more like, hey, these more seasoned athletes who have been training for longer have higher percentages, not, oh, the strongest competitors have the most two A's. That makes sense. So, so when, when people talk about fiber type shifts, um, what, what time frame are we probably talking about here? So like if, if someone, you know, if someone starts with like 30% hybrid fibers at what point, so I guess 
two questions. So like one, at what point, like how, how long would someone probably have to train to get it to where they pretty much have pure fiber types with not that many hybrids left in the mix a, and then B, um, at at what point does, at, at what point has the fiber type shift kind of run its course? Um, assuming you train kind of the same way over the course of a training career, like how, how long does it take for that, for those adaptations to be fully realized? Well, there's not a huge amount of work here, but there is some in that, uh, you, you actually can see these changes in just a few weeks, at least kind of preliminarily. Um, mm-hmm. but the, most dramatic change would be if I take somebody who's a marathon runner and he starts powerlifting or Olympic lifting um, and, and vice versa, right? Because you, you have that much more room to shift Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, of what happens when you keep training like that. Um, it's again dictated by the training. So assuming you ha- you experience the shift and then continue to train in the new way, then I'd say you you're likely to maintain those adaptations. But for most people who end up going through kind of phases of less training or switching up what they do for exercise or just getting a little bit more sedentary, then you would have the shift back potentially or the shift to the hybrids. I got you. That that makes sense. Another sort of interesting note with that sample is there was this really startlingly high number of uh, percentage rather of those the two A two X hybrids in the heavyweights, and so but not in the the other weight classes. Interesting. And there's really not a lot of research on kind of obese, but highly trained athletes. So that is yeah. interesting. What do, you, what do you make of that observation? Well, I think it, it's, it sort of is in line with the, oh, we, we're seeing these in more sedentary or in more diseased populations. But then you have to say, well, but then does it matter um, for if, if you're also seeing them in these, I mean, I'd say, fairly healthy, um, or, or at least in terms of performance. Right. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, it, looking at the numbers, it looks like the heavyweights accounted for 91% of the two, a two X fibers that were found within the whole sample. That's right. I mean, that is a huge number. I, and that's so crazy. I think it's, it's really proud. You know, we could say that it's not, it, it's both training and kind of body mass that is the, the predictor of, of these, um, of the fiber type distribution. But I think what's more interesting is that having all those hybrids doesn't appear to affect their performance. It's yeah. I mean, be part and parcel of, of being that heavy. Yeah. I, I feel like the more I'm involved in this conversation, the more I'm like, man, we need to start like updating some textbooks. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Greg already alluded to this, but just the, the, the things that I've been taught and like, I'm not a dinosaur. I, I, I finished, I finished grad school like five months ago. It's not like I'm like (laughs) relying on, you know, some dusty old textbook that's out of print. Like we need to update this stuff because it sounds like we're, we're learning a lot about fiber type and kind of 
improving the methodology the methodology quite rapidly. Um, so it's, it's kind of crazy that you can talk to somebody and, you know, think that you have a good handle on this stuff and then realize like, there's a lot more to this than what's being kind of currently taught, even at, even at high levels. Sure. And I mean, it, it's evolved a ton. Um, I mean, at least you're not seeing two B fibers anymore in, bo- in most textbooks, but still, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's like the, the source of conv- confusion that will never go away is like the 2B, 2X thing in terms of nomenclature. It will yeah. just always persist and always be present and annoying. <laughs> um, so w- when an athlete worries about their fiber type, like it, if an athlete's like losing sleep over whether or not, let's say they're an endurance athlete and they're like, I hope I have a ton of type one fibers, but I just don't know. Or if they're an explosive athlete and they're just like praying that they have a bunch of, you know, super fast twitch fibers. Do you think it makes a lot of sense for people to worry about that? Or like, like, does it seem to really be in the big picture an important determinant? Uh, well, I think what we don't know is how, how much is dictated by what you're born with and how much is dictated by training. So we really just need to biopsy a bunch of newborns and then follow them throughout their life and continue to biopsy them. Good luck with that. That's going to be tough. Sweet. I, I'm all for that. Uh, I think it's it's silly to wor- to worry about it because what? Are you, are you going to go get a biopsy? Are you going to get them regularly? Um, are you going to pay for somebody to analyze your fiber type shifts? Like you're much better off just focusing on your performance. You um, never know. People are doing DNA tests in the mail these days. I mean, we, we could pop open a lab and, you know, open up the doors, make some money. That's true. Yeah. One of, one of the, so there, there aren't that many papers looking at this, but I remember, I remember back in the day reading some of like Poliquin's old stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. and the idea that the way you could know, uh, whether you were type one or type two dominant was, uh, take 80% of your max, do max reps, uh, if you get substantially more than eight reps, you're probably type one dominant. If you get like four, you're probably type two dominant. And like eight was kind of the, the bright line where more than eight type one, fewer than eight type two. And there've been like three or four papers published looking at that with kind of like a rep max test and then kind of looking to see whether like percentage of type one fibers predicts how well someone is going to do on a, on a rep max test like that. Mm -hmm. And they basically find that like, yeah, there may be some sort of a relationship, but you're dealing with R squared values of like 0.1 or something like that. So that, that kind of makes me think that very much like you're saying, like it's, it's not that fiber types are irrelevant, but I think, I think it's, it's definitely possible to worry too much about them. Uh, And if the amount you're worrying about them uh, extends beyond like, you know, I'm like a national level athlete and like, do the international people maybe have a leg up on me that I can't have access to? Like, okay, well maybe then it could become relevant, but for most of us, like it's, it's not predictive enough to, to really lose sleep at night about. Unless we could do like fiber transplant. If we can inject you cool. with like a, a bunch more type two fibers i i know in uh in in vitro research um 
you can you can induce like complete fiber type shifts by stimulating a motor nerve at a particular frequency and like high frequency stimulation will make all of the fibers downstream of it type two and low frequency stimulation will make all of the fibers downstream type one. It makes me wonder if you could perhaps have a model with like kind of high volume e-stim over the period Mm -hmm. of several weeks to induce like very profound fiber type shifts within individuals and see if that changes any like functional characteristics. Uh, but I don't think anyone's actually seen whether that principle still applies in vivo or not. Yeah, I mean, but I think that, you're looking at way bigger muscles. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if that worked at sort of a micro level, but you could sell some gimmicky product. I think you're onto something there. That's the only kind of product we sell. <laughs> now, Lauren, you recently had a review paper come out with. Uh, Robert Morton and Stu Phillips, and you guys kind of laid out, um, it's called training for strength and hypertrophy an evidence-based approach. Mm -hmm. And you guys kind of just summarize the resistance training data that's available to date and kind of put it into some practical takeaways. Um, since you're a coach, rather than having you kind of rehash the whole paper, the, the paper kind of talks about frequency, intensity, and volume guidelines. Now, you just ran a big study uh, in a bunch of resistance-trained females looking at different volume levels. Um, When you basically get a new client and you're starting from scratch, you don't know a ton about their training history, you basically have to set out frequency, intensity, and volume guidelines. Where do you typically start with somebody that's new? I think when you're coaching someone, you need to tailor it way more to their lifestyle, their uh, desires. Um, so it, it's if what, what I thought was quote unquote optimal, but it's not feasible to you, then that's it's kind of a silly recommendation. Um, so I think really though, the, the big take home is that a lot of this can be tweaked based on preference. Um, you know, for example, if somebody wants to do really high frequency training, but and spread out their volume over the week, then I think that's fine. It's uh, if someone wants to go to the gym for longer, three times a week, that's probably just as fine. Um, so I, I, I know that's kind of a boring answer, but I think a, a lot in a lot of this literature where we're looking at like optimizing this and that it kind of gets lost of wait. So does everyone want to spend two hours in the gym? Does everyone want to do 25 sets of squats a week? Yeah. So, so every, every client is basically, you start out with a blank slate. You basically start with the basics. Like how many hours a week can I get you to train? How many days is that going to be over? And you just kind of reverse engineer it from there. Sure. I mean, generally the people I get are already lifting. Um, I'm not working with brand new people. So I I look at really what are they doing now? Um, What are their goals? How are they recovering? And we can kind of tweak it from there. But it's, I think it's, it just isn't a one size fits all thing. Um, A lot of people are that goes for volume that goes for exercise selection. Um, I think there's a lot of dogma in terms of, Oh, you know, everyone must bench and everyone must deadlift. And it's like, eh, 
they're good exercises, but not everybody has to do them. So looking at um, what what the person likes and what's appropriate for their goals, I think is really, I feel like I'm not adequately answering your question. So. No, I mean, I mean, it, it kind of comes back to like your, your, your impressions of the study that you ran is like, I could, you know, give you a perfectly conducted statistical test comparing high volume versus moderate. But what you don't see there is that for some people, the high volume approach would have been ideal for some, the moderate would have been ideal. And for a lot of people, it probably should have been somewhere between, you know, so I think a lot of people look to the resistance training literature thinking that they're going to look at singular studies and aggregate them and get kind of a blueprint. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's more just kind of showing you workable ranges or effective zones that you can kind of operate within. I think it's also important to point out that this is just eight weeks. And for the most part, they're all, you're all you're just looking at a month, two months, three months of training. And so even if it was great for those eight weeks or for those 12 weeks, that doesn't mean you should always train that way. Yeah, I kept telling Bill that he should have extended your project, make it like a year or two, uh, but he just wouldn't listen. Mm, yeah. Now, you uh, do you have any like certifications outside of your degrees? I do. I uh, have a CSCS and um, from the NSCA, and I have a nutri- sports nutrition certification from the ISSN, and. I think they might be expired now, but once upon a time I was a NASM trainer and uh, ACE group fitness and kettlebells and TRX and prenatal and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't care about any of that though. You're certified <laughs> with. <laughs> um, no, you're, were, you're were, 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 you, were you just setting yourself up to say that Eric? No, no, no. I have, I have a, <laughs> I have a pertinent question. Uh, th- those are those are fine organizations, but not relevant to my interest right now. Mm. Now, you hold a certification from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. Is that right? I do. What is that? So that is the certifying body of for sommeliers. So you're a certified sommelier. I am not. I didn't go all the way. Uh, you, you have to. It takes years. You have to do many courses. So I have the level three and I'd have to do two more levels in order to then take that test. Oh, is level three like the lowest level? Level one would be the lowest level, but thank you for that. But you have to, you have to get up to what? Level six, level five? Level five. Yeah. So basically these are, it's courses where you learn about wine and spirits and you taste them and then you take a test. And is that the certification that you're most proud of? It is. I, I highly value my knowledge of wine and spirits. Have, have you seen the movie Sideways with Paul Giamatti? Yes. How how true to life is that movie? Um, it's fairly true. <laughs> um, Sick. It, 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 but it's it, there's like levels of snobby right so it is true that you can smell and identify different types of of grapes and even different regions that's actually when you take the test you need to be able to identify the region and if you're going to be a sommelier you even need to be able to identify the vintage 
Um, That's wild. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and so which wine would you pair with seaweed if you had to like choose one? So Greg, a little inside information. Um, there was a time where every time I like checked in with Lauren to see how she was doing, she was currently basically living off of seaweed and wine. It was like all she ate for like four months. So you, you are said you still seaweed? on seaweed? Yeah. Are you still okay. on the seaweed and wine diet? I, I haven't had the seaweed in a while. I haven't even thought about the seaweed. They were good. They were like these seaweed, seaweed thins is what they were. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Just like chips made purely. It's just seaweed, right? It's just seaweed with some other spices on them. Yeah. I don't oh, think I've had those before. They're, they're delicious. They are. They're so good, but they were expensive and I had to reprioritize. Make sure you're not going to get goiters though. <laughs> Earlier this year, I was also on the gas station diet, which was, um, you know, energy drinks, pretzels, and protein bars. Highly recommend that one. Solid. Nice. Now you won the state spelling bee in the fifth grade. Is that right? I did. I, I can't believe you know all these facts about me. Well, I do a lot of research. Yeah. I, I've got connections. What what state was that in? That was New York State. Okay, not not the worst of states. Yeah, so 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 that's like that's like a legit state. When when that showed up, I was like, well, is she from like Rhode Island or something? But no, mm-hmm. New York. That's that's big time. Greg, you are just our Rhode Island audience just disappeared with that absolute slap in the face. Did they ever appear in the first place? Most of our listeners are from Rhode Island. It's, it's you know, a huge but small following. I, I kind of think that Rhode Island, much like Finland, doesn't actually exist and is a vast conspiracy. Dude, you know I love Finland. Why would you say that? That's like my favorite place. Are Are you aware of the uh, Finland is doesn't exist conspiracy? Because it, it's it's a good one. What? Yeah, what are you just, talking about? Just Google like reddit finland doesn't exist it's like it's like a whole thing (laughs) but i've been there you think you think you have you've been you've been to southern norway that they called finland weird okay well i i have a lot of work to do tonight i need to get to the bottom of that (laughs) um (laughs) so lauren this is a question we ask a lot of people um that either do a lot of training themselves or coach athletes. Is there anything in your training or anything you have your clients do that um, maybe goes against the grain in terms of like what a lot of evidence-based people do or, or like maybe anything that there's just no evidence to support it, but you just like swear by it. Mm. Well, I think people turn their nose noses up at machines and machines should be, get, you know, given a little bit more credit, especially if you're training for muscle growth. What I see is a lot of people kind of treating strength goals and muscle growth goals too similarly. And you see that with people who prescribe the power lifts to everybody, regardless of whether they are a power lifter. Um, and, and also just saying, oh, you have to do barbell training or you have to do free weight training. So I think, again, based on goals, um, but I also personally like doing more exercise variety than is probably backed by evidence. So like 
even like week to week, you're kind of constantly cycling through different variations? Yeah. So what I wonder is, assuming you're going to get the most out of, let's say, your first set, maybe two sets, and then in, you're, it's kind of diminishing value from there if you're doing four sets or five sets, then why not do four different exercises for that muscle group for just one to two sets? I, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And I mean, if nothing else, it keeps training more exciting. Like you, you can, you can kind of get excited about doing an exercise, but like, you're not still excited about doing that exercise on your seventh set, you know? That's right. And I mean, I think given a complicated exercise uh, that that's that requires more skill, then probably that doesn't make sense. Um, but if you're doing different variations of curls or different kinds of ice, whatever, uh, tricep exercises, or I, I, I actually, I think that should be in my mind, at least that actually could potentially be better than just doing five sets of the same kind of curl. I really like that. I've been, uh, I've been so bored with my training lately. I'll just like, you know, do a bunch of sets of one exercise and move on. And I get lost in my thoughts, which is a horrible place to be for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe I should start switching up like that. I like that idea. Um, now you mentioned the machines. What's your, what's your go-to machine that you like? So when I get, I used to be somebody who was super into following a structured program and logging my progress and everything. And then I got busier and I started doing research. And so my personal training is certainly suboptimal, but I'd say when you get burnt out to just go into the gym and do whatever you feel like doing is the best way to get back into training as opposed to trying to be optimal all the time. But like, is there one machine that you just get absolutely stoked to, to get to? I'm a big fan of the, uh, the lateral. Because there, there is a, a right answer for this, but I want to see what you say before I tell you. There is a there is a right answer. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you're going to say. Well, there's actually two right answers. There's the uh, the hammer strength horizontal leg press. Uh, which is tremendous. They're not a sponsor of the show, but they should be. There's also the hammer strength um, pullover machine. Super vintage. You can't find them anymore. It's like they're nowhere anymore, but they were so legit. But man, hammer strength, they just don't make them like they used to, Greg. I feel like the more the more commercial gyms I go to, the newer ones, they just don't load up on the hammer strength stuff anymore. And it's a shame because that stuff was... I mean, if you bought a hammer strength machine 80 years ago, it still works the way it did when you bought it. Those things are so solid and incredible. So those Any are robotics? fine machines, but I would go with the tibialis anterior machine. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And also, oh, the, the, it's, it's the forearm. Like you roll it up basically to work your forearms and then, and then you roll it down. You roll the weight up. And then you roll it back down. What's your highest max on the tibialis anterior machine? Oh, (laughs) I have all my clients do one RM tibialis anterior. 
Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. Um, if people want to, I mean, like I said, you're, you're, you kind of just started getting into the research world. So people are going to be seeing a lot more of your work moving forward. And, uh, if somebody wants to keep up with you and your work that, that will be forthcoming, how do they, how do they stay in touch and, and stay up to date with that? Well, you can follow me on Instagram at Lauren CS one, but I only post yeah, six or so times a year. And generally I just use Instagram to look at videos of Frenchies. <laughs> <laughs> that, are, are, that are, is... are you, are you pandering right now? Are you pandering? No. So did I get you hooked on uh, Frenchie Instagram? the best I, I corner of instagram like it was a it was just a mutual thing for the past i don't know year yeah so <laughs> lauren has lauren understands that when she finds a video of a hilarious frenchie she's supposed to send it to me so um it's probably a little bit of pandering but okay so you're using instagram mostly as a frenchie vessel for now that's right but i i will occasionally share some other stuff like pictures of my own dog, videos of my own dog, and then, you know, some science here and there. Awesome. So any other social media or just Instagram? That is it. I have a Facebook that I never use. Can you tell how much I love social media? Yeah, it seems like you've got a good strategy put together. Well, and I, I will say this. I feel like I don't want to be regurgitating other people's information. And so until I have a unique perspective to share on a topic, I don't see much value in me posting about it. Yeah. I mean, you do kind of see people who like very clearly take on this idea, like I'm going to post something every day Mm -hmm. from here on out. And it's like, do you have a good thing to say each day? Because if not, (laughs) that's probably not an awesome strategy (laughs) because now, now you've just become noise on people's timelines, you know? That's right. And it's usually like a selfie in a sports bra talking about protein intake. Or, or just like, or just like all of those memes where it's like, Hey, did you know that the like organic version of Reese's cups have the same calories as the not organic version? Yeah. <laughs> like that, oh, oh. really contributing to society. Thanks. All, all of those drive me crazy. Cause it's like, <laughs> Dude, are you just assuming people are too dumb to read a nutrition label? Greg, what did you send me? Or you showed me the other day. It was, um, wasn't it like a really helpful image telling people not to eat nacho cheese Doritos? Oh, yeah. It was like, uh, it was like, instead of snacking on this, snack on this. It was like fucking nacho cheese Doritos and like steamed broccoli or something. <laughs> it was like, come on, man. Like no 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 one is going to think like man this is my fucking conundrum for today like I I'm trying to stick to a diet and I want to snack on something do I go with the fucking nacho cheese doritos or do I go with the broccoli man I wish someone on Instagram would help give me clarity on this one <laughs> the the other one I like that you see all the time is like let's see you need 30 grams of protein should you eat a delicious steak or 113 pounds of broccoli. And it's like, you know, it's all the same. 
Look how much more full and happy you'll be if you instead eat seven bowls of broccoli. But uh, the other thing that was a huge, uh, a huge flaw with the one that you found with the, the Doritos is that the Cool Ranch version is way better than nacho cheese anyway, which like if you're going to put out that information, at least be helpful. I agree. Plus, your mouth doesn't get all orange and your hands don't get all orange. Yeah. Lauren, did you ever have the, uh, the special edition Taco Bell flavored Doritos? I, I did not because I haven't consumed Doritos as an adult, but I saw them. You, wait, they still make them? I mean, I saw them when they came out. Yeah, because I'm thinking back to childhood. It's kind of like all I had going for me when I was a little kid. Greg, did you ever get the opportunity? I never had any of the Taco Bell uh, like cross-promotion ones, but I did have many uh sweet and spicy chili doritos which oh, yeah, that that is my dark horse that is the best dorito flavor man i've never had that what a shame Did it's you never too late to try and you put them on your fingers and they're it's like pointy it's like a cone bugle. wait oh what are they called um like bugles oh, or something yeah it. yeah yeah those were cool that, that was my dad's go-to do you guys remember how how gnarly the 90s were when they had the Doritos 3D? Oh, yeah. yeah. Those were so good. That and like the uh like the clear like all of the 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 Coke blue uh yep. and then and then like the green Shrek ketchup. Like <laughs> god, the the the, the 90s to early 2000s we're just on another level culinarily. Like, I, I don't think we'll ever get back to that level as a as a culture. No, because it was basically like, let's make food really fun for kids by making it as processed as humanly possible. Hell yeah. We had lower obesity rates back then than we did now. I'm just saying. Bring back the Dungaroos. Like, if, if you... If you look at the correlation between how much Shrek ketchup is being sold and childhood obesity rates, like... <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I, I, my evidence-based conclusion is that we need to reintroduce Shrek ketchup back onto the market, and that'll uh, that'll get childhood obesity back down to the levels they they were at 15 years ago. Have you identified the chemical in Shrek ketchup that's curing obesity? Yeah, it's whatever green dye they use. It, it's got to be like a lead-based green dye. Th- that's the part that's so astounding to me, because like tomatoes are really fucking red, man. Like you need you need some sort of like very hardcore color to not just change the color because like you could you could put like something dark in it and make it darker. But to take tomatoes, which are incredibly red and make them a very vibrant green color, like just the sheer level of chemistry necessary to pull that off. uh, I personally and I don't think I'm alone here. I think that's deserving of a Nobel Prize. I think that's probably as good a spot as any to end an interview. Um, it's it's only downhill from here. So, I Lauren, like uh, to say that uh, I love Rhode Island, and I wasn't part of any of that really negative, offensive commentary. I throw out something really offensive at least once per episode, and it comes from a place of love. And also, just let me say, um, full disclosure: I grew up in the forest. Um, and you're actually only the uh, like eighth woman I've ever talked to who I'm not blood related to. <laughs> so if I said anything grossly misogynistic, uh, I apologize. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to 
as the the person that has to edit all the podcasts, like Greg usually says at least one thing per episode that I I'm just horrified by. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they sneak through and uh, usually it'll be, it'll aggravate like, you know, 50% of the world population or like, you know, 18% of the world population. So if we get through an episode and all we did was lose Rhode Island, we're technically like pretty okay. So no one's going to blame <laughs> you for that. And we're going to survive that pretty well. Well, I'm a Canadian now, so. Eh. So we just gained an entire country of, of extremely enthusiastic fans. We've tapped into the Canada base, which is big for us. That's right. I can probably join your podcast as a co-host so you can now tap into the international market. So actually, Greg is not a permanent co-host. He's on kind of a temporary situation. So we might, we'll, we'll talk later. Mm, okay. Sure. Anyway, we're glad that you called in all the way from Canada. Um, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, everyone that's listening, make sure you uh, stay up to date with everything Lauren's doing on Instagram. It should be, she's due for another dog post in about two months and then some information about four months after that. So make sure you keep an eye on that. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.